Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here for the 351st time to talk about stuff and continue our topic from very special podcast 350 last week where we were counting down our top 10 favorite books of all time to go along with our top 10 favorite movies and games and TV shows that we've already done on past Milestone episodes. Um, so add that to our, our personal canons. Um, yeah, so we are actually recording this last week. So if something crazy has happened over the last seven days, we do not know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if President Trump lit the White House on fire in a drunken rage and burned it down on the night before the election, which is when this is coming out, we don't know about it, but it is entirely possible. Oh, it is extremely probable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Sean, this is actually coming out on November 2nd, which is the day before Election Day. Um, so this might be the last podcast recorded in um, what might still be an American democracy. <laughs> so uh, I will or just on urge... A hopeful, every- on a hopeful perspective, Jonathan, it might be the last podcast we record under a Trump presidency. Let's try to, let's yes. try to see the on the bright side of life as well. Yeah, I mean, either way, he'll be president until January, but it might be the last one before we sure. know he will be gone forever. Yes. With yes. Was the last podcast without hope on the horizon. Yeah. The last podcast before I get super wasted tomorrow night for either good or bad reasons. I don't even drink and I'm intending to drink. <laughs> yep. All right. But no, uh, today is November 2nd. Tomorrow is November 3rd. It is election day. If you have not voted, please um, go vote. Please vote for Joe Biden. Uh, vote like your life depends on it because it really very well might. I would like to get this coronavirus thing under control. And their closing message on the GOP side is, fuck it, let's all learn to live with it. That's not okay. Um, you know, vote for your grandma. I'll just, I'll maybe put it that way. If you, if, if nothing else can give you empathy, vote, vote for your elderly relatives. Well, vote for Joe Biden and vote for yeah. the sake of your elderly relatives, but circle in that Joe Biden oval, please. Yeah. Do not write in your relatives. That doesn't help anyone. Um, no. And don't vote, don't vote for fucking Kanye, um, who, was, who was on the ballot in Colorado, I think I saw. I don't think he was on it here in Iowa. Um, he was not on the ballot I got, so. Okay. Fucking weirdo. All right. So, Sean, you want to go ahead and dive into part two of our topic and continue our countdown of our top ten favorite books? Yes, let us continue this dive through the the crazy world of literature that we have found ourselves in. And it's been crazy. It's been a fun up and down kind of uh, roller coaster. Let's do a quick recap of what we said last week. My number 10 was A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit from 2005. My number 10 was Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad from 1899. My number 9 was The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle from 1902. 
My number nine was Mouse by Art Spiegelman from 1991. My number eight was Mobile Suit Gundam, the original novelization trilogy by Yoshiyuki Tomino from 1979. And my number eight was All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark uh, in 1929. My number seven was Starting Point by Hayao Miyazaki from 1996. And my number seven was Moby Dick or The Whale by Herman Melville in 1851. My number six was Post Captain by Patrick O'Brien from the Aubrey Maturin series from 1972. And my number six was King Lear by Billy Shakespeare from probably 1606-ish, maybe. I love it. All right. My number five, continuing my Barnes & Noble Classics line of books, is Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. The book that sparked my love of naval literature, but also I have read multiple times in adulthood because it is compulsively readable, and it holds the fuck up. It is it is the Star Wars of its day in that it is a story for young boys. It is a it is a you know adventure fantasy for young boys, but I think it can kind of work for everyone, and it works no matter what age you are because it is such a great tale of adventure. It is also one of the things we will be talking about with the largest cultural footprint, obviously. Um, you know, Treasure Island invented the modern vision of the pirate, um, the Jolly Roger, the parrot on the on the shoulder, the peg leg, so many different things that we now can, like people just, I think, I are, think our history about pirates was just Robert Louis Stevenson wildly inventing in this serialized book he wrote for kids. Um, but it is so good. It is, you know, everyone knows it. Everyone knows the plot. Everyone's seen at least one film adaptation, the best of which is Muppet Treasure Island. I'll just put my foot down on that right now. Um, because because Tim Curry is the best Long John Silver I've ever seen. I mean, that guy fucking owned it. Um, but it is such a great adventure. It is told from the point of view of Jim Hawkins, and then at one point, Dr. Livesley, uh, in the middle of the book, and then it goes back to Jim. Um, and it is, you know, it's a coming-of-age story to some degree. It is this big adventure novel. Um, it, it, it feels so fantastical but grounded because Stevenson, obviously a great author, did the research. It has a good amount of naval, you know, verisimilitude. Um, I think it has phenomenal action scenes on the high seas. The, the one where they are coming to the island. And this is actually where Dr. Livesley... Um, takes over the narrative and talks about how they get from the ship to the island where the other pirates have already gotten off and, and um, uh, mutinied. Um, it's just a terrific piece of, of action-adventure uh, writing that I love. Um, but the entire just sense of imagination. This is a book that is like... It, and there's a couple of these in my top five. That is such well-trod territory in culture. You are almost like born knowing Treasure Island... And yet, when you read the original work, it is the best version of it, and it is the freshest, and it just feels new, no matter how many times you read it. That's one way I would describe it. I am always, it is always a page-turner, no matter how many times I go back to it. Um, And I do go back to this one fairly often, because it's an easy read, but it is a great read. It has so many vivid characters. You know, it's not a particularly deep book, but I don't care. I just love it to that degree. Um... Than I always have. So I will I will read my passage, which is just the closing of the book because it has such a great haunting ending. Um, so these are the final paragraphs of Treasure Island. All of us had an ample share of the treasure and used it wisely or foolishly, according to our natures. Captain Smollett is now retired from the sea. 
Gray not only saved his money, but being suddenly smit with the desire to rise, also studied his profession, and he is now mate and part owner of a fine full-rigged ship, married besides and the father of a family. As for Ben Gunn, he got a thousand pounds, which he spent or lost in three weeks, or to be more exact, in nineteen days, for he was back begging on the twentieth. Then he was given a lodge to keep, exactly as he had feared upon the island, and he still lives, a great favorite, though something of a butt, with the country boys, and a notable singer in church on Sundays and Saints' days. Of silver we have heard no more. That formidable seafaring man with one leg has at last gone clean out of my life, but I dare say he met his old negress, and perhaps still lives in comfort with her and Captain Flint. It is to be hoped so, I suppose, for his chances of comfort in another world are very small. I love that line. The bar silver and the arms still lie, for all that I know where Flint buried them, and certainly they shall lie there for me. Oxen and wain ropes would not bring me back again to that accursed island, and the worst dreams that ever I have are when I hear the surf booming about its coasts, or start upright in bed with the sharp voice of Captain Flint still ringing in my ears, pieces of eight, pieces of eight. I fucking love this book. It's very good. Yeah. So that's my number five. All right. So my number five, this is probably going to be the hardest one to talk about on my list. It's the one I've had the most complex relationship probably than any of these books. Um, my number five is The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, um, which this, man, I don't even know where to start. So I guess where to start is how I encountered it because I've kind of went, I, I didn't like Canterbury Tales for a long time. Um, and then over the course of several years, as I had to revisit the text um i came to sort of like really see what it was doing and appreciate it um but canterbury tales i was introduced to it through um a class i took when i was at boulder um, getting my english uh, literature degree uh that the class was something it was called like folk tales something of that um it was like very broad it was just like oh this seems like this will be like an easier kind of literature class i like folk tale stuff let me do this um one thing i didn't know at the time this would have been first semester's uh, sophomore year uh, one thing I didn't know at the time about the English literature department at Boulder is that we um, have a bunch of, I say we, um, they have a bunch of medievalists. Um, and it's like, it's a very strong medievalist department, meaning um, people who specialize in the medieval period of English language literature in particular. Though you have some good people who are good with the matter of France, which is like the Charlemagne stuff, um, which is also very cool. Um, but so that means that a lot of those professors are way into medieval literature. Because their way into medieval literature, that's the thing that they're going to teach. So if you take a folktales class, to me, folktales is like, let's do like Aesop's fables and maybe we'll have like a like Bigfoot or like, you know, we'll have like some fun, like weirder stuff like that. Um, but they decided, uh, the professor, and I still don't really understand how, I don't think I wouldn't put this in folktales really. Um, I can kind of see it, but I just don't agree with the choice. Um, decided that basically the whole first half of that semester would us just be reading the Canterbury Tales in its original Middle English. Um, and I'll go into what all that means in a little bit. Uh, and I sort of really bounced off of it hard. I read it because I read all the stuff for my classes because I'm a sucker. Um, and so I read Sean, all that can shit. I, yeah. can I interject here and just mm -hmm. say yeah, I vividly remember the months when you had to read the Canterbury Tales and we would come home from school and I would come home and you would be like sitting on the couch and just you would just go into it because I was the one you had to talk to about it and just like this fucking old English Canterbury Tales and it was just for months I felt like because you said it was like half the semester right oh yeah it was it was it was probably maybe like eight to nine weeks long uh, that yeah we covered. I have I have book. 
yeah, I have no memory if this leaked onto the podcast at all. You, people can go back and listen to old episodes and see. But it is a vivid memory I have of you with... This is like me and the Tree of Life or something, is, mm-hmm. is your long relationship with the Canterbury Tales. Yes, yes. This is very similar to what you talked about with your movie one, of having a couple of those movies like Tree of Life that you bounced off of originally, and then when you came back to it, it grew to be, grew to be one of your favorite things. Um, and so... And I did a good job in that class. Like, I was able to get a handle on the Canterbury Tales stuff. I just didn't like having to read it. Um, and part of it was just, like, it's it's such a huge amount of work. Um, and it is particularly, if, like, I would have been 19. I guess it's a fucking hard book to read. And you will f- see here why in a little bit. Um, but then, because, again, because Boulder has so many... See, Boulder has so many medievalists in the English literature department... Like, I just couldn't escape it. I'm pretty sure literally every single semester from that point, we would cover at least some of the Canterbury Tales. I had two classes. I had that my sophomore year, and I had one my senior year um, that we did the Canterbury Tales in full. And then I would have at least one class where we would hit one of the tales, so like one part of it um, as part of that course. And so it's just like I couldn't escape it. I kept on coming back to it. But the more and more I came back to it, especially having gone through the full thing and then coming back to it afterwards... Part of what makes the Canterbury Tales remarkable is its overall structure. Um, and you don't get a good sense of that when you're in the middle of it. You kind of need to be out of it and looking back on it to really get all of what it's going for. So what the Canterbury Tales is, it was it was a series of stories composed by Chaucer over the course of um, from about like the 1380-ish to 1400-ish. It's another one where you don't have good precise dates for all this stuff. Um, and it's a series of stories that... Um, are framed as in the narrative all these different characters going on a pilgrimage to the um, the cathedral at Canterbury Um, and while they're on the way there uh, the sort of main narrator has this idea of hey let's all tell stories on the way so that to kind of like entertain ourselves and so you have this thing called the general prologue that kind of establishes that premise and that framing and introduces you to all the different tale tellers um, and there are, in the general prologue, they have, I believe it's 30 different pilgrims. Um, and we generally believe that the Canterbury Tales went unfinished and Chaucer died before he could finish it because we don't have that many stories. Um, it is set up as basically they would tell, I think, two stories there and two stories back, which would be like a ridiculous number of stories. It'd be like 120-something. Um, and instead, the, there's a 25 stories in the Canterbury Tales um, and so what it is, is almost like a, an anthology in a way that you would have a, a tale told by one of the pilgrims that would be either something that's pulled from general folklore, which I think is how the, that professor justified it, is that some of these tales did not originate by Chaucer originally, kind of like Shakespeare. He's taking it and modifying it for his own usage. Um, or some of them were invented by him whole cloth. And you'd have the tale teller introduce it in a prologue. So you'd have like the knight. And the knight would give the knight's prologue where he sets up the, the tale and then he'd tell the story. And at the end of the knight's story, the miller interrupts it and he's another one of the pilgrims and he has his prologue where he's interacting with the knight and then he sets up his tale and he has the miller's tale and it goes on like that um, and it's sort of framed that way. And what's really remarkable about the Canterbury Tales in that sense is it does a lot of different things. It's a huge text. So it is one, I think, a brilliant piece of satire on the sort of like classist society at the time where you had the three estates 
um, which were the people who fight, which are like the aristocracy. You have the people who pray, which are like the clergy. And then you have the people who work, which are your like normal working people, your farmers, the peasants, that kind of stuff. Um, and you have a pretty strict structure in medieval England at the time that puts people into those roles. And Chaucer breaks those roles down by putting this very eclectic group of characters together and then having them sort of bounce off of each other. So he has characters from very different stations of life, like the knight and the miller is like the most clear example, where the knight is like the the highest ranking character. He tells the first story. His story fucking sucks. It's boring as shit. Um, and then the miller comes in and the miller is this like raunchy, um, you know, working class guy who then tells this really body story about like sex and all this stuff. Um, it's very funny. And his story is way better than the knights. Um, and it kind of proceeds in that fashion where the tales tell us as much about whatever the story itself is as it tells us about who is telling us the story. So he, he breaks down and sort of um, dissects the different roles and classes of the society of his day um, in a way that feels like at the time must have felt like extremely radical. There are not many examples of other tech, at least extant texts from that period that does something like this. It's pretty unique. Um, and then the other thing it is, I think, and the value I get from it is I think it is one of the most comprehensive treatises on like the nature of storytelling because you have all these different stories. They're told in very different styles. They're different genres. They're different voices. And they come from different people, from different walks of life and different experiences. And so he's breaking down, like, what makes a good story? What makes a bad story? Like, what is a fun story? What is a tragic story? What is, um, like, why do we tell stories? What do we have to get out of it as tale tellers and tale listeners? Um, and, and not just, like, stories in, like, book a book sense, but stories in a like bigger like way of just like when I tell you, Jonathan, about like this like thing that happened when I was at class and I had to read the Canterbury Tales and blah, 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 blah. What am I as a human being trying to get out of telling this sort of narrativized account of things that happened in my own life? Um, and so when you have 25 tales over the course of the Canterbury Tales, um, it can go into such a detail and there's such a richness to it. Because so much of the material of the text and what makes it vibrant and come to life isn't even really the stories themselves. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. Um, but it's really about what happens in those in-between spaces. What happens in those prologues where the tale tellers interact with each other um, and sort of you get this window into who is this person that's about to tell me the story because who they are tells you more about the story than the story itself. Um, and it's fascinating in that way. Uh, one thing that's also interesting about the Canterbury Tales as a historical document is that it is recorded like a Shakespeare play where we, there are no definitive versions of Shakespeare plays. We edit them together out of multiple different sources because the original versions were not recorded um, and we only have Shakespeare plays from the first folio, generally speaking, um, which was published posthumously. Uh, the Canterbury Tales is assembled in a lot of different manuscripts. And so there's a whole rich, like there's a whole field of academia that is just basically the Canterbury Tales. Um, and one major factor in it is how do the Canterbury Tales fit together? Because different versions put them in different orders. And we have what are either called fragments or groups. And there's like all this like academic debate and discussion about what is the most appropriate order to put them in. And, and so there's like a whole field of academia that is just focused around this. But the one other part about the Canterbury Tales that I haven't talked in detail yet is the language of it. So it's written in poetry, generally speaking. There's some prosaic sections. It's generally poetry. Um, and it was written, as I said, in the late 14th century. 
um, which English back then it was not English. It was what we now call Middle English. Um, so for perspective, Shakespeare, which people generally struggle with a lot, that is modern English. Shakespeare's technically, we call it early modern English. As, as a language, like Shakespeare's English is not particularly different from ours. It's like grammatical structures, pronunciations, things like that. Very, very, very similar. Um, Middle English is pretty different in a lot of ways. Um, and then you also have Old English, which is like Beowulf, which is effectively a different language. Like I could not, if you gave me a thing that was written in Old English, I would be able to identify the pronouns because the pronouns are the same because pronouns don't change easily in language because they're pretty fixed linguistic grammatical structures. Um, and maybe a couple of old nouns and verbs that have lived on. But generally speaking, Eng Old English is very different. Um, Middle English is maybe manageable. So I'm going to now read the first, I think it's about 18 lines of the general prologue. Um, this hey, Sean, section, yeah. would it be funny if I tried it? Because <laughs> I'm looking at it right now and I have okay. no idea how to say any of this. So, yeah. So let's have you just read a, a first few lines and then I will read for you how it's actually supposed to be pronounced. Before you do, though, I want to make it clear. So this is another reason why I just was annoyed with this class is that I had to memorize um, and perform for the class. And everyone had to do this um, the first 18 lines of the general prologue. Um, so Jonathan, let's have you go, just give like the first four or five lines and do your best to try to pronounce it, how you think it's meant to be pronounced. Um, so give us Jonathan, your interpretation of middle English. Juan that April with his shore suit, the drought of March hath pursed to root and bathed every vein in switch liquor of which vertu engendered is the flower. Juan Zephyrus eke with his sweet breath inspired hath in every holt and heath. And so on and so forth. Yeah, so, I mean, that's not terrible. That is, you know, I do, do you know what any I'm of that I'm playing it saying? up. I think I could do better, but yes. Yeah. Do you know what any, like, translate for me the first line. One one that appealed with the shower stood. I assume that's when, mm -hmm. when April ended? I don't know. Is that? I don't know. You know, you're sort of, you're getting a vague amount of the gist. So, so yeah, so people can tell. It doesn't really sound like anything. Let me read for you, Jonathan. This is, um, I'm not like a professional Middle English reader or anything. This is, uh, I'm an amateur at this stuff. So if you want like, there, you know, you want to look up like YouTube videos of like the best pronunciation, but this is generally speaking what Middle English sounds like. One that April with the shortest sota, the drugged of March hath parched to the rota, and bothered every van and switched liqueur, of which virtue and jontred is the fleur. One Zephyrus eck with a sweater breath, and spirit hath in every holt in hair, the tundra crocus and the youngest sonna hath in the ram his half course eruna, and smaller fowls make a melodia that slep in all the nicht with open ear, so pricketh him nature in her courages, then along in folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for to sack in strongest stronges, to find the hallways coth in sundered londes, and specially from every shira's ende of Angelon to Conterbury the winda, the holy blissful martyr for to seca. That him hath hope and when that day were sake. Fuck. I, well, one, I could listen to you do that all day because it's fascinating. Why did they give this to sophomores in college? What the fuck? Yeah. So and this is how the whole thing is written um, when, you know, so this is non-standardized English in the sense that um, this is before the dictionary was invented. So um, this is basically built out of extant manuscripts um, that... We believe um, like an assistant of Chaucer who survived Chaucer recorded these. And so we're going off of his spelling generally for a lot of this stuff. 
Um, but Middle English is a very different language in a bunch of different ways. One, it's before the Great Vowel Shift. Um, so about 100 years after Canterbury Tales, um, you have the Great Vowel Shift, which is just a linguistic shift in pronunciation of words, um, which is where we get a lot of the complexities of modern English, where vowels have a bunch of different pronunciations, kind of come from that. Um, so Middle English is a little bit more like a lot of other languages where vowels have very fixed pronunciations. So you're not doing as much of the kind of guessing. Um, and you can also see one thing that's fascinating about it is where we get some of our like weird quirks in English spelling. So one example is like the word night in I-G-H-T. Um, that G-H-T sound that we now no longer pronounce in any meaningful way back then would have been pronounced nicht or, or night would have been knicht. Um, so you would have originally pronounced the K and had this like <laughs> sound for the G-H-T. Um, all the words in, or not all the words, but like a bunch of the words in Middle English end with an E, um, which is all pronounced. So it's sota, not sut. Um, or the, even that, like that sota is not sut, it's uh, sweet. So like the first line means when April with its sweet with its sweet showers ends the drought of March, which has pierced the root of like plants basically and bathed every vein or like, you know, vein of the, the like um, root of the ground in sweet liquor. Um, which in, is engenders the virtue um, in us um, when Zephyrus, which is a the wind god, Eve like breathes out with its sweet breath and inspires in every like field, basically um, the tender crops, the young sun um, that in the ram, which is April. Also, it's Aries has run half its course. So it's describing basically um, the ending of March, the beginning of April and spring. Um, and that's the language of the Canterbury Tales. So it is very difficult um, to comprehend, but it also is this thing where I hated going through it because it was so hard. It was such a massive struggle. At the same time, when you come out of it the other end and you just try to read it in a modern English translation, it just loses like half of like its linguistic quality to me because it is poetry. Um, it's not prosaic language. Prosaic language, I think you can generally translate really effectively and it's fine. Poetry, if you're translating it, it loses all of its rhythm. It loses all of the rhymes because all the rhymes only work within Middle English because the pronunciation is completely different. Um, and so it is like incredibly beautiful language. Like I definitely would recommend people just watch some YouTube videos of people who do it professionally and are way better at it than me, read out Middle English because it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see how much the language has evolved. Um, a lot of the reason why Middle English is the way it is is because of the Norman French um, invading and in, like the French influence in the English language is really strong. Um, particularly in that period. And it's where we get a lot of like weird leftovers in our vocabulary. So like all of our legal language comes from Norman French. So that's why we have like lawyers um, and like bailiffs in that like words that are very different than normal English words. They come from that Norman French influence. Um, so that's like one of the things that's fascinating about Canterbury Tales as a modern text. Again, it is really hard to read. Um, but once you dig into it, like you're effectively learning a different language. Uh, that you can you have a really strong starting position because it is not as different from modern English as it could be because again old English is literally just a different language um, but it is part of the process of reading Canterbury Tales feels like being transported back in time to like the legacy of the language that we speak every day um, and it is like I'm now extremely thankful for that experience that I had which was fucking bullshit when I was doing it but now I've gone through the bullshit and now I can read sections of the Canterbury Tales, which I do every now and then to really kind of enjoy the richness of the language and of what Chaucer was doing.
Um, well, Sean, it's kind of funny. I have open in front of me the Penguin. Penguin has two versions, the original spelling that you were reading and then their translation. And you're so right about what it loses, because this is the same page from the Penguin translation. When in April the sweet showers fall and pierce the drought of March to the root and all, the veins are bathed in liquor of such power as brings about the engendering of the flower. And it's like it moves around the word. It sounds like it's like Dr. Seuss almost at a certain point because they're like trying to play and like I, I respect the effort to try to keep the rhymes in there, but it's it's nowhere near as compelling as what you were reading out earlier. Yeah, so Canterbury Tales... Um, like I think I'm gonna stop it there because if I go on for too long, like I could talk about it for hours. Um, I would say I guess like the one Canterbury tale, like if you want to read one of the tales, um, and just like get I think like the best part of it is the wife of Bath, her prologue and her tale. She is such a cool character because she's this lady who's been widowed like five times, and it's strongly implied that she's murdered most of her husbands. Um, and so she's sort of like lower middle class, effectively woman to translate it to like modern terms. Um, and the, her, she's such a different character. She's so sort of body, um, but then also is like one of the wisest characters among them. And she has one of the strongest tales, um, which I believe is the one that's the one that's like a recontextualization of one of the Arthurian, uh, stories in like an Arthurian knight and being like falling in love with like a fairy or something like that. Um, so yeah, the wife of Bath is the one to pick if you just want to read one of them. Um, but if you ever just want to like full on dive into some crazy historical stuff, Canterbury Tales is, I mean, because it is like one of the great works of English literature. It is like so deeply influential to everything that came after because it's one of like the earliest surviving works, like great works of English literature um, that influences everybody who read it. Um, you know, like Shakespeare, there is a lot of Chaucer in how Shakespeare writes. So it's good stuff, just very hard to read. I love it. All right. Should I do my number four? Yes. What's your number four, Jonathan? Well, I'm just going to start by reading, and you'll understand what it is. <clears throat> the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a few things to say on the subject of towels. A towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Partly, it has a great practical value. You can wrap it around you for warmth as you bound across the cold moons of Jaglan Beta, you can lie on it on the brilliant marble-sanded beaches of Sandragonus V, inhaling the heady sea vapors. You can sleep under it beneath the stars which shine so redly on the desert world of Krakafoon. Use it to sail a mini-raft down the slow, heavy river Moth. Wet it for use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Wrap it round your head to ward off noxious fumes or avoid the gaze of the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trawl, a mind-bogglingly stupid animal. It assumes that if you can't see it, it can't see you. Daft as a brush, but very, very ravenous. You can wave your towel in emergencies as a distress signal, and of course, dry yourself off with it if it still seems to be clean enough. So, this is Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, technically, here I am talking about the original 1979 novel, but um, we can just roughly say this stands in for all five books, because mm -hmm. you cannot, you can buy these separately, but I don't really know where. Like, I have my set of all five. That's how you usually buy it. Uh, I need to get a new one because the cover is torn. Uh, I have had this for a very long time. And I love these books. Douglas Adams is one of those people who has had a huge influence on my writing, on my way of thought, 
on my sense of comedy. Um, you know, I first read these probably in high school, maybe in middle school, um, and I've just always been obsessed with with the sense of humor in these books and and the sense of storytelling. Douglas Adams is a wordsmith of just such an extraordinary quality. Um, not just for like in ways that are very funny, but also just in ways where every once in a while you will stop and it'll just feel like a a verbal punch to the face to hear what an interesting way he has put words together. Um, you know, I love it for that. And the thing is, the book versions of Hitchhiker's Guide are not even necessarily my favorite version of it. I still think the definitive version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the original radio plays. Um, if you don't know, these were not books originally. These were radio plays on the BBC. You can find those. Um, they're very, very good. They did two series, uh, 12 episodes total, that Douglas Adams wrote and were broadcast on BBC, and that's the original run. And then he adapted um, a bunch of that into the first book. The first book, which was famously truncated because he missed so many deadlines he just sent them what he had and that's the first book and then the second book restaurant at the end of the universe adapts um kind of what was left um the second radio series um episodes 7 to 12 is really weird because almost none of it wound up in the books and it's mostly unknown to modern fans of hitchhiker but it's really i would still recommend listening to it i love that second series it's just very different and weird um and then um but but he did those first two which are based on the first series of the radio and then went on with life the universe and everything which is the third book which is tremendous um and then the fourth and fifth are a little more controversial in the i feel like in the fandom i really like uh the the um the fourth one um so long and thanks for all the fish which is where arthur dent falls in love it's actually a surprisingly sweet romantic novel and i don't really like the fifth book mostly harmless which is just extraordinarily dark and and Adams was in a pretty deep depressive episode during that book and you can tell um and I don't think it's a great ending but I love the the rest of it um like I said I think the radio drama is the definitive version I even have a book that is the scripts of all the radio series but the thing is it was adapted pretty closely in the books like a lot of the language that we find most funny in them does just come straight from the radio series and it adapted to book form pretty readily these are definitely books I prefer to hear read out loud like via an audiobook or that radio series to just reading them straight um, but you know that's true of like just what you said about the Canterbury Tales or Shakespeare mm -hmm. or something a lot of good literature is meant to be read um but yeah i have i have always had a soft spot in my heart for these books um i was it was very hard to know where to put this because it is the most overtly comedic thing on my list obviously um it wound up at number four because just uh, my this is like my sentimental pick sean when we talk about sentimental picks um this is just one that just is too big in my heart not to include at a relatively high spot on the list. So, you know, I would say roughly this is all five books. But if you want to be like, no, Jonathan, you can only pick one, then it's the first one, which is the best of the books. But um, there you go. That's that's my tribute to Douglas Adams, who uh, I have much less to say about this than you did about the Canterbury Tales. Because the Hitchhiker's Guide is much easier to get through for a modern <laughs> audience. Um so I feel like this is kind of like a, a come down from your big explanation on that because I don't know if I have more. But I will read at least, let me read, this is probably my favorite little piece of comedy in Hitchhiker's Guide in terms of an exchange. And this is another one of the guide book entries. And this is from the explanation of the babble fish. 
Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could have evolved purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as a final and clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the babblefish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It could not have evolved by chance. It proves you exist, and so therefore, by your own arguments, you don't QED. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed on the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that did not stop Ulan Kalufid making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book, well, that about wraps it up for God. Meanwhile, the poor babblefish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. And I find that passage, which I have read hundreds of times, screamingly funny, but also so representative of Adam's weird outlook on the world, his blend of philosophy and comedy, and his just amazing architecture of words that you could not recreate if you tried, and some have tried, because there have been attempts to continue the story without him, um, but there's nothing like Douglas Adams. Absolutely, yeah. I have a deep, unabiding love for Hitchhikers as well. Um, obviously, we also have our connection to Adams through Doctor Who and the City of Death. Um, oh, yeah. Yes, and it is, yes, it is, Hitchhikers is just incredible and is definitely um, among the funniest things in the world. Yes. All, All right, right, Sean, let's hear your next. Um, I wonder if this will be as, as difficult as the Canterbury Tales. Not quite, but it is also very complicated to talk about. Um, so my number four... Um, this is probably, if you're like a massive literature nerd, this is maybe a slightly controversial choice of what could be in the slot. My number four is Dubliners by James Joyce, um, which is a short story collection that he uh, published in 1914. Um, James Joyce is one of the great, I would argue he's the greatest of the modernist authors um, coming out of the early 20th century. Um, he is um, an Irish author who struggled a lot with his Irish identity um, and his relationship with his family and his home. He was he lived in France for most of his life. Um, and he while he is like one of the most beloved of the modernist authors, he really didn't write a lot. Um, Dubliners, I believe, is the first like published like work he has. That's not a short story published in like a journal, like a standalone volume. Um, and it's a series of short stories that he had published of his 15 short stories, um, most of which that had been published separately. And the 15th one is a novella called The Dead. Um, and then he also wrote a short collection of poetry that's not that good. Um, he wrote a play called The Exile that's also not that good. Um, then he wrote a novel called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man that was very successful. Um, I've read that multiple times and it is fantastic. Um, and then he read Ulysses, which is I have not read, um, and I talked about that at the beginning of the last podcast as one of like my bigger blind spots, um, as one that I really need a class to kind of help me work through everything in that novel. Um, but Ulysses is generally regarded as his magnum opus. It's a sort of like broad retelling of the Odyssey, um, but in like a modern Irish setting, um, and it is. For, like I've read some of the opening of it and it's like bizarre and good and weird and complicated. Um, and then he wrote one more novel called Finnegan's Wake, which is uh, utterly incomprehensible. Um, I, it is like just, it is like basically what if you did a whole novel that was the Jabberwocky poem by Lewis Carroll, that it's like a lot of made up, like it's, it's an experiment in language effectively, like even calling it a novel is maybe strange. 
Um, the fun fact for Finnegan's Wake, that is where we get the um, word for the subatomic particle quarks because they behave in such bizarre fashions in a physics sense that physicists named them after um, a made-up word that Joyce had in Finnegan's Wake because it's like, what the fuck is this novel talking about? Um, let's take this like weird bullshit word and use it to describe this particle that we don't understand what it's doing or how it functions or why it exists. Um, so it is, Joyce is a very strange author and he's absolutely one of my favorites. And of all of his main published work, um, between Finnegan's Wake, Ulysses, and Portrait of the Artist, the Young Man, and Dubliners. Dubliners is by far the least studied. Um, there's like, there's not that there's no academic writing on it, but generally speaking, when academics approach Dubliners, they approach it as here's this thing this author wrote before they wrote the stuff that we look at, right? It's like you're writing an essay about Ulysses, and you have this like section about, and here's some of the stuff that from Dubliners, because there's some characters that cross over. Um, but for me, like, I think that that it does Dubliners such a deep disservice in the history of English literature um, to just look at it as this thing the author did before they did the famous stuff. Because it is, I would say, like, one, I would say it's better than Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Most literary people would not agree with me on that, but I would definitely stand by it. And I think it is um, the best anthology of short stories written by a single author in the English language. Like, it is incredible. So what Dubliners is as a novel or as an anthology itself um, is a series of 15 short stories set in Dublin from like the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, um, basically around the time of when Joyce was a child. Um, and it's a series of short stories that are not directly interconnected, um, but they are very, th he was very thoughtful in how they are spaced together. Because generally speaking, the early stories um, feature child protagonists. So they're out of the, the eyes of children. The middle stories are sort of like young adults. And then the latter stories are adults and kind of like older people that are on that side of their life. They're like settled, married, that kind of stuff. Um, and it is this really fascinating look at this sort of cross section of Dublin at a time in its history where um, Ireland was in a state of extreme political turmoil because it is in Irish history when you start um, having the, uni like the unification and sort of like independence movements in Ireland getting a lot of momentum. Um, so you have a politician named Charles Stuart Parnell um, who died uh, before Dubliners came out. Uh, he died in 1891. Um, right? Is that right? Yes, he died 1891. Um, and Parnell was one of like the main figures that helped push forward these sort of like Ireland's independence movement into um, for Ireland to self-rule um, away from the British Empire. And he got caught in a scandal and then died um, in the 1890s. And Joyce's father had um, was like highly politically motivated around that. And so Joyce has a really complex relationship to this notion of Irish independence because he sees both this like potential of Ireland and this like love of Ireland. And at the same time, feeling like the things that people are grasping for to try to like find this like Irish independence from England have already been lost. And that Ireland has effectively lost what it was. Um, it has lost its culture. It's lost most of its language. Um, and so he's sort of living in that moment and sort of dealing with that and thinking through the impact of Catholicism and Protestantism and the conflicts between Northern, I Northern Ireland and what we would now call the Republic of Ireland, but Southern Ireland. Um, and so it is very complicated. Um, the short stories are all um, really fan fantastic on their own. What makes Dubliners a great work of literature is how they combine together to give you this full sense of the city and the people that live in it. Um, and it, it features one of the hallmarks of Joyce's writing style in which like 
not a lot happens in like a very like sort of direct sense. Um, they are there. It's not like here's like these crazy wacky stories or whatever, or there's big fights or whatever. It's they're very mundane stories telling the lives of people. But um, Joyce gives you the audience this incredible sense of emotion and how you are observing them because he also doesn't write people from like their perspectives per se because you do not get insight into what they're thinking. Um, it's actually Joyce is one of like the touchstones I think of when I think of Tomino for Gundam. And it's a similar sort of writing style of that you are removed from the characters. And a lot of what you're, the work you are doing as a reader is trying to understand what the characters are doing and why they're doing it and using the evidence of the characters like actions as a way to build out the psychology of them and what the story is um, saying. And so um, just to, like run down a couple of the stories very broadly because I do I have the Wikipedia page open and I love the one sentence descriptions for all these because a lot of them just sound like how is this even a story? So like you have an encounter which uh, Wikipedia says is two schoolboys playing truant encounter a middle-aged man um, which is exactly that is exactly what happens in that story. It's two schoolboys who are who are like you know playing hooky basically not going to school and then they're in the park and they talk to an old guy and that's it. That's the whole story. Um, but it is it is about like them seeing so like a vision of themselves in the future um, in this older man. Um, one of the ones that's one of my favorites is Counterparts, um, which Wikipedia describes as Farrington, a lumbering alcoholic scrivener, takes out his frustration in pubs and on his son Tom, which is that is what happens. It is about this dude who he's drunk, he's at a pub, he goes home and he beats his son. Uh, that is not in any way actually descriptive of that story, though, because what that story is, why it's called Counterparts, is that it is not just Farrington. It is this cross-section of all of these people who are living in this class of society um, who are politically downtrodden and and go to alcohol as a way to sort of soothe themselves and from there um, abuse it and then commit violence. And so by the end of that story, Counterparts, I don't even know if you can say that there's a character Farrington in it because he has melted into this miasma or this gestalt vision of this character of the abusive father, um, which is like a linguistic move that is so powerful in that novel or that short story. Another one of my favorite short stories is Ivy Day in the Committee Room, um, which Wikipedia describes as minor politicians fail to live up to the memory of Charles Stuart Parnell. Um, which is what that story is about. It is just a bunch of minor politicians and other public figures sitting in a room on the anniversary of Parnell's death, um, talking about how great he was. Um, and that one has one of the great, like, James Joyce one-liners at the end of it, um, where, like, all these stories have, like, this single line of dialogue at the end or, like, a comment by Joyce that just, like, really sort of kicks you in the gut. Um, and that one, again, it's all these politicians who are talking about this great, politician who like stood above all of them and died in kind of ignominy um, because he had this scandal with a relationship he had with this woman that was like an adulterous affair but it's been about 10 years after that point and so they're kind of like thinking back on him more fondly um, and then one of the politicians then reads out this poem that he wrote which I believe is an actual poem that James Joyce himself wrote when he was young because he was kind of like a child prodigy sort of guy um, and he reads out this long poem that's like extolling the virtues of Parnell um, and then they, they turn to ask like one of the other characters, oh, so what did you think about that poem? And the guy looks at him and says, I think it was a very fine piece of writing. And the story stops there. And it's just this like, we are all we can do is sit in this room and talk about how great this person is and have this very fine writing. And none of us are going to do anything to actually live up to the legacy of this movement that after Parnell dies, falls into obscurity for like decades um, until the mid 20th century when Ireland actually gets some measure of independence. 
Um, and then you get the last story, and this is where I'm going to read a section from the uh, collection, which is The Dead, um, which I believe was originally published on its own as a novella because it's the longest. It's about 40 pages. Um, and The Dead is a story, well, have, Wikipedia describes it as Gabriel Conroy attends a party and later he speaks with his wife, has an epiphany about the nature of life and death. Um, and that is what the story is about. He goes to a party with his wife. He's having a great time. He's kind of this like middle-aged guy um, who doesn't have like, you know, he's, he's okay, kind of middle class. He's doing okay for himself. Um, and at the party, he's like, thinks like, man, this is going really great. And he kind of is like, when we go home, I'm going to like make love to my wife and we're having this great time. It's going to be like, we're going to, this whole thing. And he thinks like, I'm going to get late tonight. Um, and then when he goes home, starts talking to his wife and then realizes that she has had the exact opposite experience at that party. Um, because she had heard this song that brought back this memory to her of this boy that she was in love with when she was younger um, who died very tragically. Um, and Gabriel did not know this about his wife at all. And she tells this whole story about him and all this stuff. And Gabriel realizes in that moment that he has not understood anything about her. And this is a very existentialist moment where he realizes how separate he is from both her and everybody else like in the world and at that party and the way he experiences the world is not the way that other people do and that his emotional life is not something that he can just project onto other people. Um, he has this like whole revelation. And then you get the last paragraph um, as the wife slowly goes to bed with tears in her eyes and Gabriel sort of stands up and looks out the window and it's winter in Dublin. And um, that's where you get this final paragraph um, with an important context is the lover that his wife had was a young man named Michael Fure, um, who died because he was kind of sickly, um, and, and so he passed away when he was like 17. A few light taps upon the pane made him, Gabriel, turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen and further westward, softly falling into the dark mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fure lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. And so the way that that story at the end zooms out to this like maxi perspective, again, you have read this whole collection of stories that is really zoomed in on the lives of these individual people in Dublin and their somewhat mundane problems that give windows into like emotional and existential issues. Um, and for the it to end with this zooming all the way out looking at Ireland as snow is falling on it. And the only thing that can be said to truly connect all these people is the snow. And it's, it's this cold snow that is laying blanket over all of Ireland. And that is the one thing that connects Gabriel to his wife. It's the thing that connects him to the, where he lives. It's the thing that connects him through time to this man um, that had things gone differently would have married his wife. Um, and, and it is so bleak. Uh, and but is also just so it, it feels like it speaks to something about like the nature of like people in this this sense of the epiphany of realizing how separate you are from people on a fundamental level and how difficult it is to understand one another 
Um, and it is one of the major concerns of modernist authors in general. And I think it's the thing about Joyce's writing that is the most potent to me. Um, and The Dead, I think, in that last paragraph is the thing that, like, I remember when I originally read it and having, like, because I had read, like, a huge, like, I read, like, the whole second half, and, like, multiple stories going into The Dead in one long sitting and then finishing with that. Like, it, like, kicked me backwards, basically, just with how, like, beautiful the language is and how solemn and, and sorrowful it feels. Um, so it is, it is... It is just absolutely one of my favorite books, um, and it, it is sad to me that it's so underread um, of all of Joyce's novels. Like, if people have not, if you like someone, the other stuff that Joyce has written, and you have not taken the time to read Dubliners, like, you're doing a massive disservice to yourself because he, the, like, the Dubliners is the foundation upon which all of his work is built, and his work is the foundation for me of, like, the best stuff of modernist literature. Damn, yeah. No, that's really cool. I also did, um, out of curiosity, have to look up the, the first page of Finnegan's Wake, and I was like, wow. And I'm like, how long is this thing? Oh, this thing is 700 pages. Yeah. What the actual fuck? <laughs> yeah, that's something you can only write if you have written a thing like Ulysses that um, like all the critics are going to be like, this is the greatest novel ever written, and then you get enough money to like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to live... Um, with my like weird wife Nora Barnacle in like France, it's the actual name of his wife, um, and we will, and then I just love that last name. Um, and he's just like, I'm just gonna write some crazy bullshit. Like Joyce was a weird dude. Um, if you want to read the most literary, like high-minded sexting in all of history, um, his love letters to Nora Barnacle. Um, are like extremely erotic. They are very explicit, but they have the kind of Joycean language and it's fascinating. Um, there's like a whole published volume of it, but you can find a bunch of it online. I highly recommend reading at least some of it because it is so weird to hear like, it would, it would be like like reading like Ernest Hemingway writing it to a woman that he loves in like a very explicit novel or a very explicit sext basically, but is written in that author's voice. It is so peculiar. Um, but yeah, Joyce is incredible. I love his work. Eventually, I'll read Ulysses. But for now, Dubliners is my favorite thing that he's written. Two things. I think Hemingway's sexting would be just very short and to the point, though, yeah. is the thing. Um, and and Nora Barnacle is the closest to a SpongeBob name any human has ever had. Absolutely. You are 100% right there. All right. My number three is one that is so obvious and so well-known and so uh, famous that I honestly kind of forgot about it uh, when I was first putting this list together. I went, no, wait, 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 this has to be on there. And that is, um, this is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And I know that's like a basic choice in a lot of ways. Every person on earth knows every in and out of this story. But you have to go back to the original text and look at it and I do pretty much every holiday season, and I watch at least one of the versions, and this is just one of my favorite and one of the most formative stories for me ever told. And it is a story I connect with on a deeper level every year of my life, I think, because I think it is a story that reveals its wisdom with age. Um, it is obviously one of the most pliable stories ever written in terms of how much and in how many different forms it has been adapted. Uh, the Muppets version of this is also very good. Um, but I think you go back to that original text, and I have not read a lot of Dickens. Um, I have read some of his shorter work like this. I have never gone in and read, like, you know, um, Oliver or something, the whole fucking thing. Um, you could, have you read any of the Dickens, like, big boys, Sean? 
Um, I've read a couple. I've read Tale of Two Cities. Um, I've read one of his little, literally known works, Dombey and Son, which I do like quite a bit. Um, but I've not done like the full Dickens, like ouvoir or whatever, because it is a lot of very long books. But what I have read, I like quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. So one day I would like to read more of his stuff, but you know, A Christmas Carol is the one I'm most familiar with. Like I said, I I try to read this every year. Um, and you know, I think I think sometimes it's like cultural oversaturation does a disservice to how good the underlying story is, and that mm -hmm. same as what I said with Treasure Island. I think it is easy in the cultural saturation of this work to forget just how good the underlying story is, and you go back to it, and and the idea of this being it's called a Christmas Carol, but it's not really about Christmas, and it's not really religious. It is just about a guy who has become such a hollow fucking shell of a man, such a cruel, broken person, and it is this autopsy of what made him that way, and this reigniting of a flame within him that is goodness and that the vision of this book is that you can take someone that bad and tear them apart and find something good in there and then light a fire underneath it and bring it back to life is one of the most wholehearted, humanist, beautiful visions in the history, I think, of, of human storytelling. And that Scrooge is such a, a beautifully wrought character in this book uh, in, in the initial you know phase when he is hateful on through the redemption um it is a truly powerful story and i and i think it is like a, a good shakespeare play in that you can see versions of it that are staid and boring and and i don't think have anything new to offer and you can say okay it's a christmas carol who cares and i think you can see versions of it that are truly revelatory uh and the one for me is the george c scott adaptation from the 80s um, it's a it's a film. It was it was a TV film, but I, it is it's just one of my favorite movies, hands down. And I think it is the best adaptation far and away of this. And I have seen a lot of the Christmas Carol adaptations. And one day I would like to do a more fulsome project about as many of them as I can find because I find the process of adapting this book pretty fascinating. Um, but I think the original work also stands as one where you go back to it. And I think if you can put a lot of the like again cultural cachet out of your head and just engage with the text it is extraordinarily powerful and there are so many great turns of phrase obviously one that always sticks with me and, and this is the one i've chosen for my little excerpt here is from the end of um the third stave with um uh actually this is the second stave i think but this is leading up to the ghost of christmas future um Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased." Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching out its hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit for your factitious purposes, and make it worse, and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource, cried Scrooge? Are there no prisons, said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words? Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. 
Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and lifting up his eyes beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist upon the ground towards him. And I pick that passage because I think it combines the sort of horror atmosphere that Dickens so perfectly captures in this book and also the social commentary that I think a bad adaptation of Christmas Carol can kind of gloss over or minimize and a good adaptation of Christmas Carol looks at and says Jesus this was a like liberal work <laughs> for its mm -hmm. for its time and for all time like this is a book that just takes square aim at the idea of wealth and accumulation and tears it apart as wrong and immoral and broken and a and a sign of deep immorality and of humanity that has been snuffed out uh, and obviously this is a giant theme for Dickens this is a Victorian thing this is you know this is this is a big thing in the literature of the time when you've got you know literal workhouses and poorhouses and shit right but it is really strong in this book um, that you know this is a this is something where you know what what defines Scrooge as evil in the beginning of this book is the kind of stuff you routinely hear straight-faced from right-wing politicians in the United States today, you know? Mm -hmm. Like like Mitt Romney in the 2012 campaign complaining about the people who don't pay taxes because they are poor. You could just cut and paste that and put it as dialogue in A Christmas Carol and no one might realize that you took something from 2012, let alone the shit we get now in the era of Trump. But like... It is a book that is 170 years old now and is as relevant as ever because these attitudes not only exist, but exist in positions of power where if A Christmas Carol came out now, it would be considered politically radical, you know? Like, it would be considered like, oh God, Scrooge is a parody of this person and this person and, and is, this, is this uncivil? Sean, is, is, is Dickens participating in a civility discourse? Like... It's only because it's 170 years old that we can all just, you know, it's like, ah, oh, Scrooge, old, mean old man. It's like, no, he's a mean old rich man. And his richness makes him mean. And it is the giving away of his wealth, the redistribution of the wealth, shall we say, that makes his heart whole. And that is a message for every year. And it is a message for right now. Good God. I fully agree. I think the only way that it could be improved upon as a work is if you maybe translated it, translated it to another setting, maybe a Western, something like of that nature. Um, and that would maybe make the Christmas Carol a little bit better. But other than that, I think it's very good. <laughs> All right. Sean, what have you got for your number three? All right. My number three, um, what is by far the oldest thing on my list, I'm going to assume it's the oldest thing uh, for either list, uh, is The Odyssey by Homer. Uh, which was written in uh, the long way time of the 8th century, approximately, B.C. Um, so this is the, if you're talking about, like, works that are influential in at least, like, the Western canon or, like, the Western tradition of, liter of literature, uh, there is nothing more fundamental and more influential than the Odyssey, um, all modern fiction, like, all fiction, basically from that point to hundreds of years later, because it, like, you know, the Romans... <laughs> influenced the shit out of by the odyssey and a lot of their literature like clearly the aeneid um their epics and then it's lost and then it comes back in the renaissance and it's influential from everything in the renaissance afterwards 
Um, and it is a, that one of those things where you just sort of like, oh, it's the Odyssey. It's just that thing, right? And maybe you were taught it in uh, high school, maybe not. Um, but it is, for me, it is like one of like the great testaments of the power of literature, even though it, it was, you know, originally an oral, orally spoken poem that was passed down that way. This is why you say broad, I'm broad umbrella for what I'm putting in this list works of literature. Um, but if you're looking at it that way, like it is immaculate. Um, it is, doesn't matter that it is literally um, older than Jesus Christ. Um, it is still a like immaculate text um, that has lived um, and stood the test of time for reason. Um, and it is utterly fascinating to me. And every time I read it, um, I get something more and deeper out of it. Um, for me, the Odyssey, my favorite translation, because obviously um, I do not speak ancient Greek. I can do a little bit of Middle English, but I cannot do ancient Greek. Um, my favorite translation is the Robert Fitzgerald translation, which is a pretty well-liked translation. Um, there are a bunch out there. I do. There's a woman who translated it a couple of years ago that is supposed to be a very good new translation that I haven't read that I do want to get to at some point. Um, but the thing that is fascinating to me about the Odyssey is that I think a lot of the elements of the Odyssey that are the best parts of it are the parts that are not really sort of commonly seen as as the Odyssey in the public mind. Kind of similarly to Moby Dick, where Moby Dick, most people just think of it as this is the Ahab story and it's the grudge and revenge thing and obsession. That's what it's about. When people generally think of the Odyssey, they're thinking of like it's the Cyclops and it's like the giant Charybdis, the giant whirlpool with the Scylla, the weird monster that they have to sail between. And it's that kind of like the sort of epic Greek mythical adventure part of it, which is really one small part. That's just four books. It's books eight through 12 of a 20 book um, volume, um, which is kind of how we separate out the Odyssey. Uh, and it is like, those are fantastic. And I love those sections. And it's like a great sort of piece of adventure writing um, that with all these fantastical creatures that are obviously like hugely influential to when we think of anything written in fantasy, it's pulling stuff from that section of the Odyssey. Um, but like really the magic of the Odyssey is, is in all the rest of it. It's in the like really complex structure of the story. Um, that I think like belies something about like when we think of when we think of ancient writing and like ancient texts I think we think of like oh because it's old it has to be very straightforward and it doesn't you know it, it hasn't it's like aged in that way that it has to be very simple and it's like the Odyssey is anything but simple it's got this very layered narrative structure where the opening of the book is what's is called the Telemachia uh, where you actually follow Telemachus Odysseus's son um, after, like, way after the Trojan War, after Odysseus has gone through all of his adventures with the Cyclops and all that stuff, he is stranded at sea. I mean, you follow Telemachus as he is kind of given a mission by Athena to go and find out what has happened to Odysseus to bring him home because his home has been invaded by suitors that are sort of plying Penelope, Odysseus's wife, for marriage to kind of take over Ithaca, Odysseus's home, and become the new king of Ithaca. So uh, Telemachus goes and he then kind of traces backwards and then meets all these mythical figures like um, Menelaus, uh, who's one of like the main Greeks in the Trojan War, and hears all these stories and trying to figure out what happened to his father. And that takes the first four books, and then books five through eight are you then meet up with Odysseus um, and you go, he is on Calliope's island, um, this nymph, and he's been stranded there for like 10 years. And he finally gets a message from Hermes and a, Hermes tells Calliope to let Odysseus go. Odysseus then uh, tries to brave the seas um, until eventually he lands on a strange land um, where he meets, meets a princess named Nausicaa. If you're curious where Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind comes from, it's a character from the Odyssey. 
Um, and then once he's there, they sit him down, they show him proper Greek hospitality and ask him to tell them his story. And that's where you get books. Um, I guess it's nine through 12 because that section ends on book eight. And that's where you get all the famous stuff with the Cyclops and all that. Um, and then after that, he goes home and then goes and fights the suitors and sort of takes over back his home. But the section that we think of as that adventure is this one small section in a much more complicated text that is really concerned with um, both like high Greek concepts of like hubris, of like what it means to be a hero, um, like the Greek conception of the hero as someone who is flawed. And so Odysseus as a character is both heroic in so many ways. He's brilliant, like he's this crafty, wily, strange old man that like kind of outwits his opponents. At the same time, he is sort of um, enraptured with himself and is sort of narcissistic in that way that he must let people know that this is who I am. And he puts himself at risk um, in order to sort of be more bold and more heroic and say like, hey, Polyphemus, the Cyclops, it's not just some random old fucker that put out your eye. It is me, Odysseus, king of Ithaca, um, son of Peleus, all this stuff. Or no, not, he's, his dad's not Peleus, but son of whoever his dad is. I am the one who killed you, who put out your eye. It is me. Um, and that always comes back to bite him in the ass. Um, and so it is, it is this grand narrative adventure with Odysseus as your central character. Um, and I find Odysseus still across these like 2,000, 2,800 years of time, such a fascinating hero. Um, I think the idea of having this sort of hero who survives by his wits primarily is something that we think of as a slightly more modern conception when it's like not. It is, it is like the foundational like proper true Greek hero um, that like embodies a lot of the Greek values so much so that the Romans didn't actually like Odysseus or Ulysses as they called him because they're like he's he's a cheater it's not fair he's not fighting fair like he's he's lying he's disguising himself he's like cheating people and betraying them um, but it is his wits as a character and as a hero that makes him so fascinating um, and then the the Odyssey just has all these this brilliant window into Greek society at the time and it's one of the great virtues of literature is this ability to be transported through history to some other place and be and get access directly to the thoughts and feelings of some person from 2800 years ago that composed this language this brilliant poem um, that was passed down orally and then eventually translated into to writing um, and their thoughts on what the world is, like what their values are, the importance of hospitality, the importance of trusting people, of opening up your home to people, um, and, and those thoughts and feelings and that culture then being translated and sort of being able to be consumed by me in the year 2020. Like what a magic like trick that is, like what a pure piece of fantasy it is to be able to do that, like literature as this time machine. So the section I want to read out of from, again, the Robert Fitzgerald translation is near the end um, of the Odyssey, because my favorite part of the Odyssey is actually all the stuff once he gets back to Ithaca um, and he has to disguise himself and you see the ravages of the suitors as they have kind of taken advantage of the hospitality of uh, Penelope and they have, you know, sort of eaten his home out of like uh, wine and bread, basically. Um, and so then he's, he sets this layered plan to eventually trap the suitors. Um, and he's put all these things into motion and got all these different allies. And um, then eventually he's in his home disguised as this old beggar. Um, and the suitors have sort of started up this challenge um, to, hey, anyone who can string Odysseus's old bow, which is this like massive bow that is like so big and like you would have to be like a proper hero to be able to have the strength to bend this bow and string it. Anyone who can string this can bed Penelope and become the new lord of Ithaca. 
Um, and there's this weird old beggar that's in the corner that they don't really pay attention to. And all of them try, and none of them can bend it. None of them can string the bow. Um, even Telemachus tries um, to, to do it, and he doesn't quite make it, but he's, like, very close because he's Odysseus' son. Um, and then eventually, like, the plan is Telemachus is going to go give the bow to Odysseus, um, disguised as the beggar, and that's going to be how they start this thing and trap them, and then Odysseus is going to use the bow to kill them. Um, and the suitors are all like trying to stop him and be like, no, why would we want this old beggar to do this? Like, this is disrespectful. Um, and then eventually they hand the bow to Odysseus. Um, the other part of the challenge is once you string the bow, you have to shoot a bow through, um, I think it's like 10 axe heads all put in a row, which is a, just a great visual image. Um, so they give the bow to um, Odysseus and he's going to string it. Um, and this is basically him beginning his plan to kill the suitors. Uh, so I will start reading from when they're going to go bring him the bow. The old woman nodded and kept still. She disappeared into the women's hall. So she's been given a, this old woman who gave Odysseus the bow has been given a sign to go leave because shit's about to go down into the women's hall, bolting the door behind her. Flotius uh, left the house now at one bound, cat-like running to bolt the, cor the courtyard gate. A coil of deck rope of papyrus fiber lay in the gateway. This he used for lashing and ran back to the same stool as before fastening his eyes upon Odysseus. So they have set the trap, they've closed the doors, they've wrapped it up um, and locked it up. And Odysseus took his time, turning the bow, tapping it, every inch for borings that termites might have made while the master of the weapon was abroad. The suitors were now watching him, and some jested among themselves. A bow lover, dealer in old bows, maybe he has one like it at home, or has an itch to make one for himself. <laughs> See how he handles it, the sly old buzzard. And one disdainful suitor added this, May his fortune grow an inch for every inch he bends it. But the man, skilled in all ways of contending, satisfied by the great bow's look and heft, like a musician, like a harper, when with quiet hand upon his instrument he draws between his thumb and forefinger a sweet new string upon a peg, so effortlessly Odysseus in one motion strung the bow, then slid his right hand down the cord and plucked it, so that the taut gut vibrating hummed and sang a swallow's note. In the hushed hall it smote the suitors, and all their faces changed. Then Zeus thundered overhead, one loud crack for a sign, and Odysseus laughed within him that the son of crooked-minded Kronos had flung that omen down. He picked one ready arrow from his table where it lay bare. The rest were waiting still in the quiver for the young men's turn to come. He knocked it, let it rest across the hand grip, and drew the string and grooved butt of the arrow, aiming from where he stood upon the sewell. Now flashed arrow from twanging, twanging bow, clean as a whistle, through every socket ring, and grazed, not one, to thud with heavy brazen head beyond. Then quietly Odysseus said, Telemachus, the stranger you welcomed in your hall has not disgraced you. I did not miss, neither did I take all day stringing the bow. My hand and eye are sound, not so contemptible, as the young men say. The hour has come to cook their lordship's mutton supper by daylight. Other amusements later with song and harping that adorn a feast. He dropped his eyes and nodded, and the prince Telemachus, true son of King Odysseus, belted his sword on, clapped hand to his spear, and with a clink and glitter of keen bronze stood by his chair in the forefront near his father. And then from that scene, the next Fuck, chapter, that's so good. Yeah, it's so <laughs> good. It's so good. And then the next scene, the doors are locked, um, and then Odysseus and Telemachus just ruthlessly fucking massacre every last one of them, um, where you've been spinning this whole story, seeing all the ways that these guys have been just the rudest, crassest, just like most disgusting fucking cockroaches on uh, Odysseus's land. And he just fucking massacres all of them. 
Um, and it's especially if you've read the Iliad in comparison, it's so fascinating, where if you have like the details of Achilles, um, who's kind of the main character of the Iliad, um, and his fights are way more like, I'm just going at you and we're fighting one-to-one, -one, um, and it's like mano y mano, like, and it's a sort of the whole structure of ancient Greek writing that's like how you would fight. Um, and so the Odyssey for its time, like that sequence is incredibly subversive because the expectation would be normally you fight one-on-one -on -one against like your proper opponents um, and that you have like the one guy like Hector for the Trojans or here you have Antinous who's sort of the leader of the suitors that it would all culminate in the big showdown between Odysseus and Antinous as like the leaders on either side. Instead, Antinous just gets an arrow through the fucking eyeball immediately. He's the first guy to die because Odysseus isn't fucking around and he just kills them all um, and just slaughters them and like the whole, it describes the whole floor of the hall just like covered in blood because he's just murdered all of them. Um, it is I haven't just... I haven't read the Odyssey in full since high school, but that mm -hmm. sequence is burned in my memory yeah. more than most things from high school literature. You know, yeah, it is such a powerful sequence, um, and I just love just fucking. It's the just the image of Odysseus as disguised as this old man sitting down, and then he just everyone has been spending like the whole day, like they couldn't even bend the bone inch, and he just like whoop, he just like flips it on, it's done, swings it, grabs an arrow, shoots it through every single bronze uh, axe head, stands up, and is like, let's go, motherfuckers, I'm gonna, like, guess what? I'm gonna murder all of you. And right when he's, like, standing up, fucking Zeus sends a lightning bolt down to be like, this shit is on. Um, it is, like, one of the great climaxes in all of literature. Um, and it is just, like, a supreme pleasure to read the language. Um, and it is definitely, like, you know, if I had infinite time, I would love to like learn ancient Greek just to be able to read it in its original language because I'm sure it's like beautiful. Um, but if you get a proper translation, like I can definitely recommend the Robert Fitzgerald one um, that does a good job of keeping a sense of the poetry without like going out of its way to be too cutesy with it, which a lot of translations do. And I don't think you need to do that, um, but it gets the sense of the weight of the language so effectively. Um, it's just like the Odyssey is just so good. Um, it is like there's a reason why there's like an entire field of academia dedicated basically to just studying the Odyssey and its history um, because it is so profoundly um, powerful as a piece of um, writing, um, as poetry, as um, subversive history, like a subversive text for its time that has just been like ingrained into our culture ever since. Um, it is a, you know, it is like a weird thing that like, I feel like most people just kind of, as you're saying with something like Treasure Island, like I feel like the Odyssey is that to like the hundredth degree, whereas like people just take for granted that it's just this thing, that we have this word um, that comes from this story. Um, but it is like when you go back and properly read it, again, as an adult, I'd recommend it if you've only have read it in high school, to really try to appreciate what is going on with the language and the complex narrative structure of it. Yeah. Um, so I've read the Fagel's translation Mm -hmm. um, which I feel like is probably the most famous, at least in like the publishing world, because it's the one that all the high schoolers use typically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally speaking, and that one um, tries to maintain more of like the rhyming structure, and I'm not a huge fan of that, um, okay. which is why I go for the Fitzgerald one. Yeah, because I'm looking at the different ones here. I've always loved the first line of the Fagels, sing to me of the man muse, the man of twists and turns. I've always remembered that. Um, yeah. But the, the first line in the Fitzgerald is good, too. It's, sing in me, muse, and through me, tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending. The wanderer harried for years on end after he plundered the stronghold on the proud height of Troy. I really like that. And I'm also looking at, I think the woman you were talking about is Emily Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, 
has this new translation that I'm looking at it and apparently it's all in iambic pentameter uh, and it uses the exact same number of lines as the Greek, but um, it seems pretty good from what I'm looking at. It's a little plainer than either of the other translations, um, and I think the idea is for it to be more readable, but it looks really cool. Um, I, man, if I had time, I would love to just read all three back to back and compare them, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah, I do particularly love Fitzgerald's um, translation of the epithet for Odysseus as the man skilled in all ways of contending. Like, that's just... What a fucking great yeah. line that is. Like, that's a great turn of phrase. Yeah. Um, the Emily Wilson, just to give a comparison, starts, Tell me about a complicated man. Muse, tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy and where he went and who he met, the pain he suffered on the sea and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed and for their own mistakes, they died. Anyway, I, I it, it seems good to me. It's, it's clearly plainer, but it rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I have the Fagels, and I should I'm gonna buy another one of these because I would love to take the time to read it again. I love the Odyssey too, Sean. I considered it. It's just been too long since I gave it a close reading, like the full thing. Um, there is, I will say, if you want to be entertained, Ian McKellen has an audiobook of the Fagels, hmm. and that is a fun way to hear the Odyssey. I have not listened to the whole thing, but. Um, that's probably honestly the best way to experience the Fagels because it's in that register um, that yeah. Ian McKellen is good at. So, yeah. All right. Should I do my number uh, two now? Yes. What is your number two book of all time, Jonathan? Well, here I have a confession. And I have never talked about this on the podcast. Okay. And I don't know if I've ever talked about it in, like, public life. I hope I'm this a big is like Jane a pornographic... Oh, you're Jane I thought you were going to say, like, you have, like, an erotic novel that you're going to bring up. Yeah, no, this is a Playboy from 1982. Yes. <laughs> the articles, it's the articles, Sean. They're really good. No, um, I'm a big Jane Austen fan. I really love Jane Austen. Uh, I have not read all six of her books yet. I have read half of them. Um, I have read Pride and Prejudice. I have read Sense and Sensibility. And I have read my number two favorite book, Emma by Jane Austen. Emma um, is, so let me back up for a second, though. And I want to say, there's this I've been grappling with this and I think at some point I'd like to do an essay or a video essay or something on this that I think I'm someone who likes a lot of things that are traditionally coded as feminine mm -hmm. um, in music I you know some of my, the, my pop music that I like um, some books and things like that and I, I don't talk about it a ton uh, and I remember in high school when I discovered this about myself, there's a lot of that that like, especially when you're in high school and you're surrounded by this like very oppressive sense of like traditional gender roles, you like, I, I definitely had an ironic detachment from things I was interested in. Like, I think I can admit to myself now that my interest in Twilight, for instance, was not fully the ironic detachment of I want to make fun of this thing, but I actually kind of enjoy it on the trashy level that it is meant to be enjoyed, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and, and I feel much healthier being able to admit that as an adult. But for some reason, Jane Austen got wrapped up in that when I was a kid. And I think it's because Jane Austen is, is, has been coded that way for a long time as it's like, you know, women's literature. Which it is. It's by and for women. It's one of the great things about it. But I remember reading Pride and Prejudice in high school. And I don't remember if we were in the same class for that one. We probably were. Um, I think we were. But like, yeah. And I remember a lot of other people in class... Like, a lot of the, the boys, like, dismissing it, this stupid romance novel, and a lot of the girls being into it, and me being like, 
holy shit, I love this. I love the language. She is a phenomenal writer. She is so funny. She is so incisive. And But I kind of pushed myself away from it in that ironic detachment way. And I have come back to Jane Austen in recent years as an adult and reread some of these. One of the ones I got into outside of school in high school was Emma. And I've always been fascinated by Emma. But I don't think I had done a full, like, what I would consider close, full reading of the book until this summer. Um, and I went on a Jane Austen kick and I read all three of those that I mentioned earlier. Um, but I read Emma again and I have my Barnes & Noble copy. And I loved it so much. I don't usually write in my books. I'm getting better at being able to write in my books because I actually think it's a good thing to do when you want to really closely read them. Uh, and I just have notes throughout this entire thing because I did a very close reading of it. And I love this book so much. And I think it is such a an extraordinary story. You know, if you don't know the basic setup of Emma, um, I think Emma is generally known as Jane Austen's most overtly comedic novel. Um, it is a comedy of manners in a lot of ways. It is about a, a young woman named Emma, a Woodhouse, uh, handsome, clever, and rich. As the uh, let me just read the first lines because the first lines of Emma are one of the best intros. I mean, Jane Austen's opening sentences are always good, but I think the one for Emma is particularly good. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. What a perfect opening, because what you hear there is, okay, telling us who she is, telling us that she's good-looking, she's smart, she's rich, and then saying, like, seemingly praising her and praising her, building up this balloon, and then pop very little in the world to distress or vex her and that is this that is the perfect austinian sentence of building something up and then so subtly you might not even noticing it popping it at the end and taking the piss out of it um because she is a great comedic writer and satirist of the british landed gentry and emma is the ultimate work of that for her i think um you know something like pride and prejudice is a little more straight-faced I think Emma has this amazing tightrope walk of being consistently very, very funny. I find this a laugh-out-loud funny book pretty much throughout, and so many of my little underlines and stars I've written in the margins and just literally writing the word lol next to it so I'll remember that that made me laugh is just lines that are just um, savage in taking a character and kind of taking the piss out of them that way and she does it throughout the book and yet I think the genius of Emma is that it is also to me her most emotionally effective story of the ones I've again given a close reading to um, because amidst all of that humor is this really amazing story about a young woman Emma Woodhouse who starts completely in her own head unable to see other people for people and it is, an, uh, it is a coming-of-age story where what coming-of-age means is empathy, is being able to see other people as human and imagining their circumstances and never getting to, and acknowledging that you're never going to get to a point where you understand other people as perfectly as you will understand yourself, but that you have to strive to do it and that in so doing, you will also realize how little you understand about yourself. And that's what Emma's about, because Emma is about this woman, her, her um, live-in maid, her governess, Miss Taylor, gets married at the beginning of the book, and so she loses Miss Taylor. Um, Emma's mother has died uh, when she was young, so Miss Taylor was sort of both a mother figure and a best friend, 
and Emma is very lonely. And there's something Jane Austen does really well throughout this book of never getting overly sentimental, but I think giving you enough to understand some of the emotional duress of the characters and that Emma is someone who is just without it being able to say it, like, cripplingly lonely in the world. Um, in a way, I think she does for a lot of her books of, like, this... Especially when she's doing, like, people who are properly part of the landed gentry, like, you know, upper class, they have no job, just, you know, they exist to live on their wealth, and that there is some there's a pathology to that that is really broken that you see in a lot of her work, and, and Emma particularly. Um... And that because of this, Emma is also bored. She is smarter than everyone else around her. And she decides she's going to become a matchmaker because she perceives that she made the match for Miss Taylor and her husband. Um, she really didn't. Um, she's, 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 there's a lot of self-delusion and cognitive dissonance in this book. And so she makes a friend, Harriet Smith. And Harriet is um, basically a bastard child um, who goes to the local... I don't know if you could... Do you call male or a female... Um, without like a father bastards or do you call that something else in I, I I think you kind of can I think the concept doesn't necessarily exist because women can't inherit things anyways so it doesn't right. matter yeah but it is still a social impediment that, yeah. that like Harriet doesn't know who her parents are she is apparently her dad and you learn later in the book that her dad basically she was born to like a prostitute or something um, and her dad is a rich guy who pays for her education but Harriet doesn't know who he is so anyway Harriet goes to this local school um, Emma really does like Harriet and they become friends but she she decides she's going to like turn Harriet into like part of the landed gentry with her like raise her in her social status and tries to make this match with the local vicar um, uh, who is of a very different social class than Harriet and it goes very wrong and then a lot of other things happen um, and that's the basic structure of Emma but again it is this really lovely work under all the comedy and the manners and the different characters about this person who I think is fundamentally good Jane Austen does fundamentally love her characters and I think it's something there's a warmth to that that is sometimes lost in adaptation um, but Emma coming to to see what she has done to other people and how her interference hurts them and hurts her um, you know it's it's something that I think the book is is really beautiful and emotional in places where I don't just laugh very hard but there are points especially in the last act when, when Emma has fully come to terms with what she's done and she starts thinking about empathy and viewing other people with empathy and her relationship with Mr. Knightley fully goes into romance and they see each other as adults for the first time, really. Um, where I tear up reading this book. I think it's it's really beautifully done and, and the romance as aspect of it is, is, you know, for Emma is, is subtle for most of the book, but when it comes into play in the end is, is so beautifully done. Um, you know, there's this part um, on page 383 of the, the Barnes & Noble version I have where this is her thinking about all the ways she has kind of like bent Harriet to her will and left Harriet worse off than when they met. And I think this defines a lot of what I've been saying about it, where uh, it says, What could be increasing Emma's wretchedness but the reflection never far distant from her mind that it had all been her own work? When it came to such a pitch as this, she was not able to refrain from a start or a heavy sigh, or even from walking about the room for a few seconds, and the only source whence anything like consolation or composure could be drawn was in the resolution of her own better conduct." and the hope that, however inferior in spirit and gaiety might be the following, and every future winter of her life to the past, it would yet find her more rational, 
more acquainted with herself, and leave her less to regret when it were gone. And that's really what the final act of this book is about. Um, is about that atonement and 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 not just in, not interfering in other people, but seeing them as fully human. Um, there was an adaptation of this book this year that actually got me back on the Jane Austen train by Autumn DeWilde. It's Emma with Anya Taylor-Joy, who we've talked a lot about a lot recently. She is going to be Furiosa in the new Mad Max movie. Um, she's on this Netflix show right now that is phenomenal called The Queen's Gambit. Uh, and she is a great Emma Woodhouse. And I think that movie is a really good Emma adaptation. And it's one of the better Jane Austen adaptations, I think, in part because it is so funny. And I think it gets, without like getting too subversive with it, like staying pretty true to the book, it gets a lot of the humor across. Um, but there's one thing I really don't like about that movie. And I think the last act short changes the narrative because a big part of the narrative of emma is there's this guy who comes to town named frank churchill who um is is a wealthy son he's, he's part of the town it's kind of complicated but everyone thinks he and emma are going to be perfect for each other and even emma thinks if she's ever going to marry it's probably going to be this guy because it's almost like preordained and frank churchill comes and they become friends and they flirt an awful lot and and emma even kind of falls for him and you find out later the big twist at the end is that Frank Churchill was actually engaged the whole time to Jane Fairfax. And Jane Fairfax is this girl who is in the funniest stretches of the book. Emma hates for no good reason. And it's like very clear to the reader. Jane Fairfax is a good, like sweet person who has been put upon a lot by life and has come out pretty well. And Emma, because Jane Fairfax, I wrote this in my notes at one point, Jane Fairfax is the woman Emma thinks she is. Mm -hmm. Like Emma thinks herself to be and that's why she hates Jane Fairfax. But he was engaged to Jane Fairfax the whole time. And what this does is it kind of rouses Emma into this. While everyone thinks Emma should be angry at and hating Frank Churchill for basically using Emma as a shield so no one would suspect he was with Jane Fairfax, this actually prompts the greatest awakening of empathy for Emma in realizing, like, but I was, I was being secretive and manipulative too, and, like, what don't I know? And there's this big letter that comes from Frank Churchill explaining all of his actions, and at the end of it... Emma is the only one who like fully forgives him in a way because she kind of understands that duplicity and not knowing yourself that I think Frank suffered from too. And she comes to like be genuine friends with him and Jane and all these characters. And in the end, there are no bad guys in Emma. And I think the movie paints with too broad a brush and just has Frank as kind of the bad boy. And there is never that reconciliation. And I think that's absolutely crucial to the book. Um, you know... The, the thing that makes Emma so extraordinary as a piece of literature is that it is an intense 500, yeah, about 500 page character study of this one person, Emma Woodhouse. It is all from, I think there's two chapters in the whole thing that are not like directly from her point of view. It's third person, but from her point of view. But it is a book about delusion and cognitive dissonance. And so Austin has to walk this tightrope of you are with Emma's POV and you see her POV, but you also see the things consistently that you know she is deluding herself about. And that is, I think, one of the great magic tricks I've ever come across in literature. And it's something that actually makes this book hard to adapt, I think. And it's why I, I do think that Autumn DeWilde movie does this well, where you can see all the things that make Emma genuinely good 
and you can see where she is coming from and why she thinks the way she does and you can also see in moments oh my god stop 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 you are deluding yourself and your friends and you don't know what you're talking about and all of this and it is this fascinating um it, they call it one of the big things this book pioneered is free and direct discourse which is the idea of having your third person inserts but the the author can just come in and kind of say things too um, and it's it's really so well done throughout this entire book, and and where you know the the book is kind of this arc of Emma's understanding of the world kind of coming into alignment with the reader's understanding until by the end where we're kind of in sync, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, but man, I just find this such a powerful book. There are so many good things in it. There are parts where Jane Austen is very clearly like cackling to herself writing this. There is um, the character. Oh, I'm forgetting her name right now. But it's it's Jane Fairfax's aunt. Uh, Miss Bates. It's Miss Bates. And Miss Bates is... Emma hates Miss Bates because Miss Bates talks a lot. Even though Miss Bates is like one of the nicest people in the world. There's a there's this long... Like I'm showing it to you here, Sean. It's these two solid, yeah. tiny script pages that is just Miss Bates talking. And there are so many of these through the book where you can hear uh, Jane Austen having fun writing Miss Bates' voice. I call this one the apples filibuster because it's just purely... Um, Miss Bates going on and on about these apples that um, she wanted to get baked and she sends them to the baker but they weren't well, rightly done and then they come back and then they go back and forth and it's this very funny thing um, and and the big turning point of the book is when is when Emma very cruelly um, tears down Miss Bates in a joke without realizing it in front of all their friends and that's what is a turning point because Emma, Mr. Knightley calls her on it and then Emma starts to evaluate herself um, and I just love that the, the comedy and the drama are so mutually reinforcing in this book that it can be very funny and very deeply felt at the same time. And that's part of the beauty of Jane Austen. And, um, you know, I still have to read some of the, like, lesser-known ones like Persuasion and Mansfield Park, and I'm excited to do that at some point. But of the ones I've read, I just think Emma takes the cake. It's, it's such a phenomenal book. Awesome, yeah. Like, I've never been a big... Um... Jane Austen person like I've read Pride and Prejudice I've read Sense and Sensibility I've read uh, Northanger Abbey um, which I think is actually pretty interesting because it's fairly different than a lot of her other stuff um, and I've, I've always been more on the like I'm a big Jane Eyre guy like Jane Eyre is one of my honorable mentions um, like if I have to I, you know you can like Jane Austen and like Jane Eyre but I'm like Jane Eyre is like my <laughs> big Victorian um, novel written by a woman like about the, the woman experience at the time but of course like Austin's like command of prose is nearly second to none at the time. I'm more just am not super personally invested in like the theming of a lot of her stuff. Um, but her skills as a writer and a satirist are um, just like incredible. Yeah. And I think Emma feels a little more universalist to me than some of her other stuff. And my proof for this is go watch the movie Clueless by Amy Heckerling from 1995, I think. And that is a. Um, honestly like surprisingly close translation of of emma into a modern day high school setting um starring alicia silverstone and uh britney murphy and it is so good and amy heckerling is i mean she did fast times at ridgemont high she's she's a brilliant writer director and and clueless is so funny and i think it's What's so great about it is it doesn't use any of the Austin dialogue because it's set in the 1990s, but it adapts the, the, like, the thoughts and the feelings of that book to this basically high school clique atmosphere and is every bit as savage and biting as Jane Austen is, but in this different setting. And it's, it's, I almost think Clueless isn't just a great fun adaptation. It's almost a great critical treatise on Emma and why it is transferable to different contexts. Um, 
And I think that is, in some ways, the most impressive Jane Austen adaptation for that reason. Uh, although Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility is a hell of a fucking movie. It's actually better than the book, because um, I think Sense and Sensibility is, eh, it's a little... I can um, agree on that one. It's, well, it's her first book, and you can see where there are growing pains, I think. Um, yeah. All right, very cool. It's good to have some proper Jane Austen on, on one of these lists. Yes. So that was your number two. My number two, Jonathan, um, is a novel very near and dear to my heart. It is Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley, written in 1818. Um, and it is the, I would say granddaddy, but it's really the grandmommy of all of science fiction. Um, it is like, if you're talking about influence in uh, like popular culture, and, and especially influence that is like deeply underestimated because I think the popular conception of Frankenstein is is really far away from the novel is. Um, but like almost any science fiction thing um, has like pulls from Frankenstein, um, usually in a way that like makes a lot of like science fiction stuff that pulls too much very dull because nothing does it better than Frankenstein. Um, but Frankenstein, you know, the, the broad concept is very famous. But I think like the what the novel itself actually is is less well known. So the concept is, of course, you have Victor Frankenstein, who is your um, kind of mad Victorian scientist, um, who kind of based on experiments that were happening like in the real world at the time around electricity and galvanism and like discovering that like the nervous system is motivated by electricity, some of that stuff. Um, Mary Shelley writes a story of Victor using electricity to bring back this sort of like dead creature, um, the monster, and then the sort of movie versions that we kind of more think of um, have the monster as this sort of like big dumb creature that is then discriminated against because it's ugly and weird and it can't really speak um, or articulate itself. And then eventually the world turns against it and then kills it and like burns it in a barn or whatever, right? Um, we tend to think of, of the James Whale film, which is a great movie, um, but is not a particularly good adaptation of the novel. It just kind of takes the premise and then does something different with it. The novel itself, Frankenstein, is this fascinating analysis um, in sort of like wandering frictive discourse on the nature of humanity, of like religion, what it means to be created, um, and what it means to be a creation in sort of struggling with this concept. Um, if you like abstract it up from if we are like Frankenstein's monster, then God is like Victor Frankenstein to us. Um, it is sort of like combating with a lot of those ideas while also um, just being like a really sort of like creepy, effective gothic horror novel um, about a crazy zombie man that's going around and then eventually starts killing people and like threatening Frankenstein to um, create a bride for it and all this kind of stuff. Um, but the, the, some of the stuff I love about Frankenstein, um, I mean, that theming, like the, you know, those themes that is dealing with on like the nature of humanity, what it means to be created, what are the obligations of a creator, um, like what it, effect does technology have on us as we move forward in time and like the moral consequences of the advances of science, like all those are things that are very fascinating to me. Um, but also just Frankenstein's construction of as a novel is so effective. Um, it actually is pretty heavily inspired by the construction of the Odyssey um, itself in that it has an opening section that is, um, it is the whole thing is framed as um, an epistolary, meaning it is a novel, very standard for Victorian or near Victorian literature because this is 1818, so not quite Victorian. But a very standard construction of the novel is basically told, framed as letters. So this um, sailor in the Arctic 
comes upon Victor Frankenstein after the events of most of the novel um, and is writing a letter back to him, I think, to his sister, um, talking about all this stuff um, and then kind of relaying the story. Um, and so it starts after most of the story has happened. Then you get this flashback to Victor as he's sort of going about and sort of building up to doing the experiment. He does the experiment. Um, he sort of loses his shit because he's just like can't deal with the monster and that the monster's alive. And then the monster escapes and runs out into the night and Victor lets him go. Um, and then Victor goes on with his life and tries to forget about it. Um, and then I think it's like a couple of years later while he's like climbing around in like the Alps on a big vacation uh, he is accosted by the monster who then takes him and basically drags him into a cave, sits Victor down, um, and then at chapter three of, I think, book two, I think is how it's separated, uh, the monster sits down and says, like, this is my story. I'm going to tell you my story, and I'm going to tell you what I want you to do for me. Um, and you have not seen the monster. Like, the monster escaped. When it escaped, it was not able of, capable of speech. When you meet it here, all of a sudden it is speaking in this heavily articulated manner. Um, and then the monster starts relaying his life um, to Victor. Uh, so I'll, I'm going to read a section here from the beginning of chapter three as the monster starts to describe his experience of escaping from his perspective. It is with considerable difficulty that I remember the original era of my being. All the events of that period appear confused and indistinct. A strange multiplicity of sensations seized me and I saw, felt, heard and smelt at the same time, and it was, indeed, a long time before I learned to distinguish between the operations of my various senses. By degrees, I remember a stronger light pressed upon my nerves so that I was obliged to shut my eyes. Darkness then came over me and troubled me, but hardly had I felt this when, by opening my eyes, as I now suppose, the light poured in upon me again. I walked, and I believe descended, but I presently found a great alteration in my sensations. Before, dark and opaque bodies had surrounded me, impervious to my touch or sight, but now I found that I could wander on at liberty with no obstacles which I could not either surmount or avoid. The light became more and more oppressive to me, and the heat wearying me as I walked, I sought a place where I could receive shade. This was the forest near Ingolstadt, and here I lay by the side of a brook resting from my fatigue until I felt tormented by hunger and thirst. This roused me from my nearly dormant state, and I ate some berries, which I found hanging on the trees or lying on the ground. I slaked my thirst at the brook, and then lying down, was overcome by sleep. I'm going to stop there for now. Um, so one thing that's fascinating about me, um, about Frankenstein, like the best part of the novel, is the characterization of the monster itself. And it's why the adaptations to me are so unsatisfying, because the monster is effectively characterized as what if you had a creature that both had the, like, qualities of an infant and its ability to absorb and perceive the world and like gain information but also had like some like the faculties of an adult um and you put that together and it's what makes the monster in some ways frightening is its ability to rapidly learn acquire language acquire concept like complex concepts but it seems to intake that information um at the rate of an infant but process it with the mind of an adult um, and so it is a blank slate. It's a tabula rasa like creature. It has no preconceived notions about anything. And so its ability to quickly evolve and gain complex philosophical and moral notions that are far high and above more advanced than any other human character in the book is like unsettling because he is effectively a superhuman. Like it's not he's not some sort of degraded creature the way that it's typically portrayed in the film adaptations. He is better. He's more sophisticated. He is stronger. He is faster. He is smarter. He is a better like speaker than any other human character you encounter. 
Um, and that is, I think, such a fascinating concept that then is the main source of inspiration for any android or robot story that you have in science fiction thenceforth of this stress or this fear of the creation overcoming the creator of, um, you know, he is positioned both effectively as an Adam figure and as a Lucifer or Satan figure that will rebel against God. Um, so he plays this kind of dual, dual religious role that plays at these anxieties that I think we have as humans, both in our sort of like familial relationships and our relationships with friends, but um, also in our relationship towards technology and the sense of the generation coming up and the things coming up and what technology is allowing and doing um, that like um, displace us in time because we are not able to catch up with these new scientific advancements that seem to be betraying um, and defying things that we took as granted as like normal things that like are plain truths about the world that like dead things can't come back to life. Obviously dead things can't come back to life. We have not don't have that technology yet. But those are like le were legitimate anxieties for the early 19th century where if you can take a dead frog and jolt it with electricity and the frog starts moving is it that big of a jump to then imagine well could eventually it start moving of its own accord once if you supply it with its own electricity or whatever like you don't understand how life functions in that way um so it playing against those anxieties and creating this creature um that is so sympathetic because it is the reason why the frankenstein's monster turns against humanity and becomes the scourge that it is in the novel towards frankenstein and the people he cares about and the monster murders multiple people over the course of the book but the reason why is because humanity has spurned him and he has no place in the world uh one other thing that's fascinating about frankenstein you can see in that passage i just read is it basically just presages um all of psychoanalysis and its analysis of like the human condition as an infant because every single thing i just read in that one paragraph is like if you want to get the basic ideas of like Lacan's mirror stage and shit like that, that's all represented basically there in like a broad sense. And, and this is 1818. This is uh, well before any of that stuff was actually being written um, and considered. Uh, it is like Mary Shelley was a fucking genius um, with this ability to sort of conceptualize the world from the perspective of a mind that is empty and receiving information for the first time ever. Um, and not being able to distinguish at first objects as being separate from itself or sensations as being distinct things and instead experiencing all sensations as one gestalt sensation. Like that shit that nobody else is writing about um, that then would become like standard sort of elements of philosophy like almost 100 years later. It's really amazing. I, um, I've heard you talk about this book so much. I, did, I, did, uh, I have successfully predicted your top two, by the way. I wrote uh -huh. these down hours ago in this conversation. I, I, like, I bet this is his number two, and I bet this is his number one. Yeah. Sorry, what? I, didn't, I would not have thought it would be very hard, because it, it was no. one of the easiest ones and twos I've ever done. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, but anyway, I'm excited to hear about your number one in a second, because I know what that is, too. But anyway, you no, know, I have... Uh, last time I think I did a Barnes & Noble like haul for their classics, I bought Frankenstein. So I've got it sitting on the shelf over there, and I need to read it, because you talk about this all the time, and it's clearly so like formative to how you think about so many of these things. Um, and I love hearing about all that. It's, yeah. it's really cool. It's, and, it is like yeah. why... One of the main reasons why like Nier Automata is my favorite game is because it is unlike most things that is like taking elements of Frankenstein but not doing it as good as the book does it like Nier Automata starts like from where Frankenstein ends as like a thematic consideration and moves forward um it's like I think the last time I talked a lot about Frankenstein on the podcast I think was when I watched the first season of Westworld because that was why like I could see why people would maybe like that first season of Westworld but for me it was like but this is just like what if someone 
had never read Frankenstein and didn't realize that like all the things that this TV show is trying to do have already been done for like 200 years. And it's like, it's like when a <laughs> um, like undergrad writes an essay and doesn't realize that their thesis for the essay, which is like a whatever essay, is like a very similar thesis to a very famous piece of literary criticism. And it's like, what was even the point right. of writing this dude? Like you should have done more research to understand the field before you did this. Um, I want to read one more I also more feel like you're... Go ahead. You go oh, ahead. sorry. I was going to say, I also feel like you're giving a little bit of an implicit critique here uh, that is very important that so much of we of what we um, ascribe to important white men really came from this woman, Mary Shelley, yeah. who for centuries people have been trying to explain how she must not have written it because she was a woman. Exactly, yeah. Because the only like the other thing that's great about fucking Frankenstein is the story about how it was written and like the whole meeting with like Byron and Percy Shelley and them, um, and like them writing ghost stories for each other. It's very good. Um, but I want to read the ending of the book because I find it so effective. Um, because it's just like man, the monster, like Frankenstein's monster, is probably my favorite character in maybe like fiction because I just think it's so good. Um, so this is the very end of the book um, where Victor for the, it's uh, goes back to the frame narrative. Victor Frankenstein has quietly passed away from illness um, on the ship up in the Arctic. Um, and the guy who is like our frame narrative person had like left. And then he comes back in and sees this dark figure standing over Victor Frankenstein. Um, and then they have this very long exchange. So there's like two or three pages of them talking to each other. I'm obviously not going to read that whole thing, but it's all very good. But I'm going to read the last couple of paragraphs because it's the monster now basically saying his goodbyes. Farewell, I leave you and in you the last of humankind whom these eyes will ever behold. Farewell, Frankenstein, if thou wert yet alive and yet cherished a, a desire of revenge against me, it would be better satiated in my life than in my destruction. But it was not so. Thou didst seek my extinction that I might not cause greater wretchedness. And if yet in some mode unknown to me, thou hast not yet ceased to think and feel, thou desirest not my life for my own misery. Blasted as thou wert, my agony was still superior to thine. For the bitter sting of remorse may not cease to rankle in my wounds until death shall close them forever. But soon, he cried with sad and solemn enthusiasm, I shall die, and what I now feel be no longer felt. Soon these burning miseries will be extinct. I shall ascend my funeral pyre triumphantly and exult in the agony of the torturing flames. The light of that conflagration will fade away. My ashes will be swept into the sea by the winds. My spirit will sleep in peace, or if it thinks, it will not surely think thus. Farewell. He sprung from the cabin window as he said this upon the ice raft which lay close to the vessel. He was soon borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance. The end. Fuck, that's good. Yeah, it's good. It's have good, you but... um have you ever seen the uh um. Uh, Kenneth Branagh movie. Is that the one that uh, has uh, De Niro as the monster? Yeah, yes. I, yeah, I've seen that. It's it's like a better, at, like it's closer to the book, but it's also just like, well, I, it's yeah, it's not. Very, I, I, yeah. It's a ho horrible movie. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen because it is closer to the letter of the book. Mm -hmm. But what you just read so explains how it misses the spirit because that is kind of this like, it's built around the monster's verbiage and then it is this quiet. He disappeared, you know? Yes. And and the movie the way the movie does it at the end is he burns himself on an ice flow with Frankenstein and there's this like massive music. It's like it's one of the most overwrought movies I've ever seen. Like it is dialed up to eleven at all times and it is just like so over the top, it misses all the nuance. 
Um, and it's hilarious. Like, listen to what Sean just read and then go watch that scene. And it's like, what were they smoking? Also, Robert De Niro just... Mm-hmm. It's an interesting casting choice, but it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like a hard adaptation to make. And yeah, I had not seen that movie since high school. And I had forgotten that that's how it ended. But now it's like I'm remembering it. Because it's basically... It's like taking... Um, like broadly what the monster is like vaguely describing he is planning on doing to himself but you don't actually see but then you show it in the movie and it's like kind of not the point of the ending like you're supposed to sort of like vaguely think about the like the flame of conflagration that he describes as like more of a metaphor than literally he's just gonna light himself on fire in this big like dramatic moment yes because they already give you a perfect cinematic visual at the end there of him slinking off into the night on the ice like yes. that's a great conclusion that you could do cinematically, but but I mean Kenneth Branagh never met a obvious metaphor he didn't love. Uh-huh. So. And sometimes that works. His Hamlet is very good. Mm-hmm. His Frankenstein not so much. All right. Anything else to say about uh, Mr. Frankenstein? It's it's very good. If like people have only seen some of the movies or like they think they know what Frankenstein is about, it is like maybe one of the most misunderstood novels. Like like even probably more so than Moby Dick, because at least with Moby Dick people understand a part of what that novel is doing. I feel like the modern conception of Frankenstein has very little to do with the actual content of the novel outside of the basic premise. So please actually read the novel because I promise it is so good. Um, And if you like science fiction, you owe it to yourself to actually read the real deal because it will, um, it will ruin a bunch of movies for you because you'll realize they're not as good or original as you thought they were. But how much sperm is there in the book? Not enough, unfortunately. There could be more. Um, I don't know if the monster himself has sperm. Like, I don't know if the the Frankenstein's wife or the monster's wife had ever been created, if he could reproduce or not. Um, but I, I wish we could have found out. I wish that he could have found out, that poor monster. But he never got to know. All right. My number one, my favorite book of all time, is Dragon Ball Volume 16 by Akira Toriyama. The fight, Goku and Piccolo, mm-hmm. at the 23rd Tenkaichi Budokai. It's just that good. It's the best Dragon Ball fight. It, I, okay, I'm not going to keep this going that long. But Dragon Ball Volume 16 is extremely good. Um, no, my actual number one. My actual number one is what you all knew it was. It's The Lord of the Rings by Mr. J.R.R. Tolkien. He of Sigurd and Gudrud fame, mm-hmm. uh, as we talked about last episode. <laughs> um... Published between 1954 and 1955, has three books, but it's really one book. Uh, I own I own so many copies of this book, Sean. I have a whole shelf of them because I like to collect. I finally found I have all three of the movie variant covers of the one volume edition, including my favorite one, which is just Gandalf standing here, which is a good cover nice. for Lord of the Rings. Um, but look, I don't think I need to go on that long. You guys know why I love Lord of the Rings. I have talked about it at length. Uh, Last summer on the podcast, we did our project where we talked about all three movies. And I would highly recommend, if you're interested in my thoughts on it, listen to those. Because I did that while rereading the book and giving it one of the closest readings I've ever gave. Where I underlined a lot and I took a lot of passages out. And I read a lot of passages for you there on the the show. And do a comparison with the movies. And I, I think I get in pretty well to why this is my favorite book. You know, I have a long history with it. The Lord of the Rings was the first big, complicated piece of literature I read. And I was frankly probably too young because I started reading Lord of the Rings in second grade. And I read it through over about a year through third grade. And a lot of it went over my head because I was just too young. But I was also pretty enraptured by it, uh, as I had been by The Hobbit. And, you know, over the years, it's one of those things from childhood that I have loved more, not less 
kind of an anti-Harry Potter, shall we say, because J.R.R. Tolkien never lived long enough to see Twitter. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And who knows? Who knows who he would have been on Twitter in 2020? Um, But yes, I... It's a it's a phenomenal adventure. It is so poetic in form and structure. It is so beautiful in its in its vision of this world and these characters. It is such a grand piece of imagination and world building. And I think if you know anything about me and Sean, you too, yep. uh, we love some good world building. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, in fiction, and no one was ever better at it than J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, I'll tell you what I said last summer on the podcast. I didn't know I would love giving a deep reading to the appendices as much as I did, but the appendices are fucking candy if you love Lord of the Rings. They are so good. They are so full of treasure. But the whole book is, and, you know, it's a book that only, frankly, gets more confident in itself the further it goes along. I recognize the criticisms of it, particularly of Fellowship, and that, boy, you spend a lot of time with Tom Bombadil and all that stuff, but I'm too close to it. I love it too much. You know, this is something I shared with my dad a lot. He loved these books. He introduced them to me. I still have some of his old copies from the 70s that have these fucking crazy illustrations on the front that are like very 70s like paintings of like the different characters um, where all the hobbits look properly like 60 year old dudes and you're like, okay, there's a reason why Peter Jackson didn't do that. (laughs) Um, You know, because it would not have worked. Um, But I just, you know, I love these books so much. I love the movies too. But I, I get lost in The Lord of the Rings when I read it. It is, I don't know if I can say it any better than it is, it's just a part of me. I can't, there's no, I don't have a choice in whether or not this is my favorite book. It just is. It just, it's the same way I breathe air. It just, it is. I don't, I can't, I can't, I can't consciously pick a different book. Um, and I'll read you my favorite passage because this is a passage that I, I read last summer to you guys on the podcast. I'll say it again here because the last sentence of this is one I think about more, maybe more often than any other like passage in English literature that I've read. At the hill's foot, Frodo found Aragorn, standing still and silent as a tree, but in his hand was a small golden bloom of Eleanor, and a light was in his eyes. He was wrapped in some fair memory, and as Frodo looked at him, he knew that he beheld things as they once had been in this same place. For the grim years were removed from the face of Aragorn, and he seemed clothed in white, a young lord tall and fair, and he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. Arwin Vanemelda, Namarie, he said, and then he drew a breath, and returning out of his thought he looked at Frodo and smiled. Here is the heart of Elvindom on earth, he said, and here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. Come with me. And taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the hill of Saren Amroth and came there never again as living man. That should be Karen Amroth. There's no soft seas in fucking Tolkien. Sindarin? Yeah. No, there's not. Yeah. I'm disappointed in you. Celeborn. Exactly. Celeborn. I thought it was Celeborn. And then I read the fucking appendices because he gives you an entire pronunciation guide down to the, the letter. It's great. Um... I love I love the Lord of the Rings. I love that is from my favorite stretch of the entire novel, which is the Lothlorien stuff. The Lothlorien stuff are my favorite chapters in Lord of the Rings. Um, but I I will go for I could go and talk about all of it. And you know we did last year, so I'm not going to go on too much about it, Sean. There is an entire podcast series where we go over this, so I will leave it at that. And I am excited to hear about your number one, which I think is Dragon Ball Volume Thirty Five. 
Yeah, no, um, it is uh, Dragon Ball Volume 35, which is the one where something happens, because I do not remember off the top of my head which one <laughs> that one is. Um, I think you'd be in the Cell, late Cell arc at that point. Yeah, um, uh, that, you know, on the Lord of the Rings really quick, because I just, you know, I, I want to say I'm very happy uh, that you had it as your number one, because I just assumed it would be, and it made it very easy for me to be like, I'm just going to save a spot for me on my list, because, like... I, the Lord of the Rings is very close to being on there, um, and I was like, but it's just going to be on Jonathan's list, and it's it's just the saves the space. We can talk about more books, so I'll let you have it, and, and it is, you know, fucking great. So, Lord yeah. of the Rings, two thumbs up. Well, and what's part of the fun now is that we have no overlap, so we get to talk about 20 different books, which is cool. Yes, yeah, so we didn't got, not get to do the thing that makes these podcasts way shorter when we can just collapse entries together, because, well, <laughs> yeah, because yes. these are two very different lists. All right. So for my number one, Jonathan, I think I want to just introduce it with a quotation, and I think people will figure out um, where I'm pulling this from. Because it is, um, has maybe like the best first sentence in anything. The world under heaven, after a long period of division, tends to unite. After a long period of union, tends to divide. This has been so since antiquity. When the rule of the Zhou dynasty weakened, seven contending kingdoms sprang up, warring one with another until the kingdom of Qin prevailed and possessed the empire. But when Qin's dynasty had been fulfilled, arose two opposing kingdoms, Chu and Han, to fight for their mastery. Han was the victor. The rise of the fortunes of Han began when Liu Bang, the supreme ancestor, slew a white serpent to raise the banners of uprising, which only ended when the whole empire belonged to Han in BC 202. This magnificent heritage was handed down in successive Han emperors for 200 years till the rebellion of Wang Mong caused the disruption. But soon Lu Zhu, the latter Han founder, restored the empire, and Han emperors continued their rule for another 200 years to the days of Emperor Zhan, which were doomed to see the beginning of the empire's division into three parts, known to history as the Three Kingdoms. This is San Guoshi, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, written by Lo Guanzhong, um, sometime around 1400-ish. This is another... Uh, dates? Complicated. Um, but... Romance of the Three Kingdoms is one of the four great historical Chinese novels. Um, if you go back a couple of years on the podcast when I was reading through it, this is like one of the few books that I actually talked about on the podcast somewhat regularly because I also watched the TV show at the same time and I was playing Dynasty Warriors and I was deep in on my Romance of the Three Kingdoms bullshit <laughs> because uh, this book is fucking amazing. Um, it is also fucking huge. Uh, it is a massive tome. It is easily by far the longest novel I've read and I, you know there's this list I have is not a bunch of just like nothing novels right or books like Canterbury Tales is super long Moby Dick is famously very long the Odyssey is quite long Romance of the Three Kingdoms eclipses all of those handily um, I imagine that uh, we might be about at the word count of Romance of the Three Kingdoms if you combine all the rest of the books on my list and all the books on your list Jonathan um, we maybe are like a little bit over Romance of the Three Kingdoms it is it is extremely long um, it is the story of three kingdoms. Um, it is the story of basically over 100, about 120, 150 years of Chinese history that took place um, in the early, like the first and second century. It's like so long ago that like you never say, this happened in the first century AD is not a word, like a sentence you usually say about stuff unless you're talking about Roman stuff. Um, but it is sort of a pseudo historical, pseudo fictional account um, by the historian Lo Guzhang, who is compiling together historical documentation from the time 
um, accounts by different poets, folklore of this sort of epic moment in Chinese history where the Han Dynasty that had ruled for a couple hundred years began to decay and fall apart. The power of the Han Dynasty split into ultimately three different factions, um, and then a fourth faction rises up, um, takes over and unifies the rest, and then brings to the end of the Han Dynasty, the end of the period of three kingdoms, and then starts a new dynasty. Um, and so it is an incredibly detailed account of many, many, many different characters. I mean, hundreds of different characters. So many characters that Dynasty Warriors games were on the ninth one, and they're still nowhere near running out of new people to put in those games. And they've got like 90-something people in them at this point. Um, like detailing their adventures, the battles, the drama, the intrigue, the politics at the time um, in, in great detail. Uh, and it is, to me, I think I said this about the Odyssey as well, um, of like one of the great magic tricks of literature is this ability to be sort of taken um, exactly to a point in time because you are um, you are getting directly the thoughts of the person that has written it, right? Is the, the great thing about literature and why I like it and why I think it is like the best medium um, for storytelling is that it is direct. It is not, other than like the most bare minimum of language and the ability to record language, it is not mediated by any element of technology um, in the way that film is, Video games very much are. Um, even music is mediated pretty heavily by by technology. And narrative in books, no, it's just language. You're just reading the direct language of the person. Um, so you are getting this, like both you're sort of getting this account of 14th century China and what this man in 14th century China is writing to you, but then conveying his understanding of this incredible period of history and the lessons that we can learn um, from this grand epic. Um, and so many of those lessons are defined for me in just that first line um, or the first two lines, really, uh, which are very famous. The world under heaven after a long period of vision tends to unite for a long period of union tends to divide. This has been so since antiquity um, that sort of sets up the novel and uh, not novel, the book like it is definitely not a novel. Um, it sets it up for what its primary sort of like interest is overall, which is giving you the ability as one person to detach yourself from your moment in history and see history as a thing in front of you and watch it sort of dance, basically. Um, and it is, if you are interested in the concept of like cycles in the way that cycles appear in fiction, it's a very common and popular theme, particularly in more modern fiction. Romance of the Three Kingdoms is giving you that, but not as like a fictional concept, but as like a philosophical concept and as a reading or interpretation of history. Um, and I think it is a particularly important and effective one for the moment we live in now because uh, the United States has been united for a long period of time. And after a long period of union, things tend to divide. Um, and, and it is the flow of things in history. And it's only through something that a text that has the kind of history behind it of thousands of years, which is what Romance of the King, Three Kingdoms has behind it, that you can offer and afford that perspective and sort of prove it effectively through the dramatization of the events of the book. Um, so in the moment we're in right now in the United States of uh, extreme division and of potentially like political revolution and like revising the way the government works and all that kind of stuff, like that's not a new thing to happen. Um, and it was definitely, this was a concept I thought about a lot in 2016 around Trump. And like when I was reading the book and it's like, fuck, this is stuff that's like, like studying history and especially this like interpreted version of history, I think is very important. Um, as literature, one of the things that is really remarkable about Romance of the Three Kingdoms to me is it is the most masterful command of narrative voice and perspective I have ever seen. 
uh, because it is a massive book that is concerned with so many different intricate things that it needs to have the most fluid, precise narrative perspective ever to be able to effectively move um, and have the novel like progress in its story um, and have that be clear and enjoyable to the audience. It needs to be able to zoom out and zoom in with incredible accuracy and alacrity um, to be able to convey the events of the story. And so Romance of the Three Kingdoms has like the most like bonkers fucking omniscient third person perspective I've ever seen. That you can be in one character's head for one second, get a couple of lines of dialogue from them, zoom out, go to the other side of China, get a couple of like dis detached like narrative lines about the like historical events of like, and these armies moved here. And it gives like dates and the citations effectively for when that kind of stuff happens. Um, and then it will zoom over here and like spend like two pages um, zoomed in on like a folktale related to Guan Yu, one of the main characters. And then it zooms back out and goes over to Cao Cao. And then you get like a poem about Cao Cao and how what he was doing at this moment in history. Um, and all of that will happen in one fucking chapter um, out of like the hundreds of chapters that are in the book. So its ability to provide this like really effective, precise narrativation and like historical documentation simultaneously is the only thing that allows the book to even function um and it's like mind-blowing because this is something i said about mouse in the last episode like it is so complex in structure and form but you never think about it you never stop and think about what the f like how does this was this person able to organize this information and present it in this way um there's so much stuff happening in like just a handful of lines in this one book and you never think about all the different things that it's doing and you're showing you and how he's sort of like calling and selecting the information to present to the reader. Um, it is like just one of the most incredible feats of writing I've ever encountered. So I wanna read a prolonged section from the book um, just to like give people a taste because this is definitely um, probably like, I'm going to guess maybe nobody listening to this has ever read anything from Romance of the Three Kingdoms um, because it's not a hugely widely read novel in English. Um, so I'm going to read a section from, it's in the middle section of the book um, to give you a sense of like the scope of the events of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, it's like a little bit past the middle and this is when Cao Cao dies. Cao Cao, who is one of the leaders of one of the Three Kingdoms. So you still have about half the book left after that dude dies from just old age and sickness. Um, so, um, so this is Cao Cao who is characterized generally as the more sort of like tyrant-esque ruler of all of them. Like he sort of rules more with an iron fist. He's got clear expectations about rule and law and order. Um, and so he's sort of, if you had to pick a villain, he I guess would be broadly the villain, but I think Romance of the Three Kingdoms has a lot of sympathy for Cao Cao. And I think you can see that in this section um, while it both condemns some of the crimes he committed and also has sympathy for who he was as a person. So this is him as he's slowly dying um, in this chapter and we and through to his death. That night, Cao Cao became worse. As he lay on his couch, he felt dizzy and he could not see. So he rose and sat by a table upon which he leaned. It seemed to him that someone shrieked and peering into the darkness, he perceived the forms of many of his victims. The Empress Fu, the Consort Dong, Fu Wan, Dong Shang, and more than 20 other officials, and all were bloodstained. They stood in the obscurity and whispered, demanding his life. He rose, lifted his sword, and threw it wildly into the air. Just then there was a loud crash, and the southwest corner of the new building came down, and Cao Cao fell with it. His attendants raised him and bore him to another palace where he might lie at peace. But he found no peace. The next night was disturbed by the ceaseless wailing of men and women's voices. When day dawned, Cao Cao sent for his officers and said to them, Thirty years have I spent in the turmoil of war and have always refused belief in the supernatural. But what does all this mean? 
O prince, you should summon the Taoists to offer sacrifices and prayers, said they. Cao Cao sighed, saying, The wise teacher said, He who offends against heaven has no one to pray to. I feel that my fate is accomplished, my days have run, and there is no help. But he would not consent to call in the priests. Next day his symptoms were worse. He was panting and could no longer see distinctly. He sent hastily for Jahodun, who came at once, but as Jahodun drew near the doors, he too saw the shadowy forms of the slain empress and her children and many other victims of Cao Cao's cruelty. He was overcome with fear and fell to the ground. The servants raised him and led him away, very ill. Then Cao Cao called in four of his trusty advisors, Cao Hong, Chen Chun, Zhazu, and Sumayi, that they might hear his last wishes. Cao Hong spoke for the four, said, Take good care of your precious self, O prince, that you may quickly recover. But Cao Cao said, Thirty and more years have I gone up and down, and many bold leaders have fallen before me. The only ones that remain are Sun Chen in the south and Lu Bei in the west. I have not yet slain them. Now I am very ill, and I shall never again stand before you. Wherefore, my family affairs must be settled. My, forced, my firstborn Cao Ang, son of Lady Lu, fell in battle at Wancheng when he was young. The Lady Beyond bore four sons to me, as you know. The third Cao Ji was my favorite, but he was vain and unreliable, fond of wine and lax in morals. Therefore, he is not my heir. My second son, Zhao Shang, is valiant but imprudent. The fourth, Cao Jiong, is a weakly and may not live long. My oldest, Cao Pi, is steady and serious. He is fit to succeed me, and I look up to you to support him. Cao Hong and the others wept as they heard these words, and they left the chamber. Then Cao Cao bade his servants bring all of the rare incenses and fragrances that he burned every day, and he handed out to his handmaids. And he said to them, After my death you must diligently attend to your womanly labors. You can make silken shoes for sale, and so earn your own living. He also bade them go on living in the Bronze Bird Pavilion and celebrate a daily sacrifice for him, with music by the singing women and presentation of the eatables laid before his table. Next, he commanded that 72 sites for a tomb should be selected near Zhang Wu, that no one should know his actual burying place, lest his remains should be dug up. And when these final orders had been given, he sighed a few times, shed some tears, and died. He was 66 and passed away in the first month of the 25th year of rebuilt tranquility. A certain poet composed a song of Yejun expressing sympathy for Cao Cao, which is given here. I stood in Yejun and saw the river Zhang go gliding by. I thought no common human ever rose from such a place, or he was great in war, a poet, or an artist skilled, perchance a model minister or son, or famous for fraternal duty shown. The thoughts of heroes are not ours to judge, nor are their actions for our eyes to see. A man may stand the first in merit, then his crimes may brand him chief of criminals, and so his reputation is fair and foul. His literary gifts may bear the mark of genius. He may be a ruler born, but this is certain. He will stand above his fellows, herding not with common people, takes he the field, then is he bold in fight. Would he a mansion build? A palace springs, and all things great, his genius masters him. And such was Cao Cao. He could never be obedient. He, a rebel, was foredoomed. He seized and ruled, but hungered for more power, became a prince, and still was not content. And yet this man of glorious career, when gripped by sickness, wept as might a child. Full well he knew when on the death bed of death that all his vanity and nothing worth his latest acts were kindly. Simple gifts of fragrant incense gave he to the maids. Ah, the ancient splendid deeds or secret thoughts we may not measure with our puny rule, but criticize them pedants as ye may, the mighty dead will smile at what you say. And so that is one section, one of my favorite sections of the novel, where you get 
this Sao Sao. It's very Macbeth-esque where he sees these hallucinations of the people he has um, committed crimes against in his bid for power and to rule his country. Um, but it also, that moment of giving this poem, which as far as I understand is a real old Chinese poem that predates Romance of the Three Kingdoms, that shows this sympathy to Sao Sao. Um, and, it, and it is this way that Romance of the Three Kingdoms is trying to give you this broader perspective. That's like, yes, he is compared to the others, more of a tyrant. Um, that's kind of how he's known in history. And yet at the same time, what this man did, he did to, for his beliefs for a unified China, because all three of the kingdoms are fighting to unify China under what they feel um, is the most rightful rule and to help people because the people are hurt under war and plague and famine um, because the kingdom, the Han Dynasty falls apart because everything is falling apart and they need to help people. Um, and it is Romance the Three Kingdoms like just reading that passage, um, like it almost it, like it makes me really emotional because the way the book gives you this window into the lives of these people who are struggling so hard and going through so much, it, the, the the tides of history to try to accomplish something so much more than what they are to try to do something for the whole of their country and the things that they believe in. And the thing about Romance of the Three Kingdoms is that they all fail. All the characters you follow through the whole novel, none of them succeed. It, like the person who like unifies all of China is someone you don't meet until like the 800th page of the version of the book that I have. Um, and they are not like a character you've been with the whole time. All these men hold these like incredible ambitions and none of them can succeed them because that is what history in time is. Um, and everyone leaves something left undone. Um, and it is just like this incredible thing that you can only get the kind of like perspective and emotions from the book by having this such wide perspective with like then the time to go in and focus in on this one moment with Sao Sao um, that is dramatic a little like a little bit more dramatized in some sections of the novel but then the moment he dies it's like one sentence it's like he laid down he wept some tears and then he died and that's it it's not he doesn't give some grand speech he just passes away quietly in the night and then you get a small poem uh, memorizing or memorializing him and then you move on to the next section of history because that is how time works um and and there's no work of literature that i have read that is able to communicate such a profound deep um, like perspective shifting, like paradigm shifting concept like that than Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is why it is my favorite book that I have read. Well, wonderful. Um, I want to talk about translation really quick and how people can read this book because I've been looking into it because at some point when I have time to read my own shit, I want to read this. Yeah. Yours is Bruett Taylor, right? Yes. Yeah. Mine is translated by C.H. Bruett, C.H. Bruett Taylor. Um, which one of the main reasons why I bought this version was honestly just because I wanted one, the whole thing in one volume because I was taking it around with me a bunch of places and I didn't want to take like put two yeah. multiple ones in my uh, backpack and stuff like that. Well, and so because I've been researching this and the Bruett Taylor one is the earliest English translation. It's from the twenties. That's why it's like I think the one you have is like a it's a, it's an open source book that like gets published by Amazon. Yeah, because I I have the the ebook version of that too. Um, and, and people like that translation. The most popular one seems to be Moss Roberts. That one was done uh, throughout the back half of the 20th century, and he finished it in 1991. And you can get that either as an abridged version or a two-part um, full book, the, the full text, although that one's priced kind of like a textbook. Each version is, each book is 35 bucks, so it would be 70 to get the whole thing. There is a newer translation that came out recently by Yu Sume, and it's published by Tuttle, and it's the most, like, 
public accessible one because it's three volumes, but they're like trade paperbacks, so they're only fifteen bucks a piece. Um, and I've been looking at them, and that one I might wind up reading because it has like the notes and everything just integrated into the text mm-hmm. instead of in like an appendix in a third volume or something. Um, but I don't. I've been looking at the text. Let me give the first line just of each of them because I think this is interesting. Because the one you read, so the Bruett Taylor has, and I agree, great first sentence. The world under heaven, after a long period of division, tends to unite. After a long period of unison, it tends to divide. This has been so since antiquity. Moss Roberts says, "Here begins our tale. The emperor, long the empire, long divided, must unite. Long united, must divide. Thus it has ever been." His is kind of the briefest. And then the new one by Yusume, which is specifically the new one is supposed to be like more readable for modern audiences. Uh, Unity succeeds division and division follows unity. One is bound to be replaced by the other after a long span of time. This is the way with things in the world. I don't like that one as much because it's not as like declarative, but um, they seem like they're all good options. Um, So I just wanted to give people a quick overview because these books in translation are sometimes tough to get a handle on. Yeah, and I would say, like, I think one of the things about Romance of the Three Kingdoms is as long as it's, like, a decent-ish translation, like, I think at some point it's, that like, it's not that important um, because, like, the what is good about the book is is less about, like, the specific phrasing and it is it is the, what it is communicating. Um, and so I think as long as it's getting that across. I will say that I think one of the things I like about the Brewitt Taylor translation is that it, it just, like, leaves fragments of the Chinese language are just like evident in the way he's translating. So like the phrase, the world under heaven is a clear like Cause I can understand a little bit of that from my knowledge of kanji from Japanese, because you have the word in Japanese tenka, which is the kanji for heaven and the kanji for below, um, which is yeah. a concept of it's like how you say like the world in some way. Um, and it means the world under heaven. And it's a Chinese concept that then became a Japanese word. Um, so, and there's just a lot of that kind of stuff that, like, you can feel the remnants of the original language in the translation, and that personally is like what I like in translations is I want it to feel a little bit off, almost in English, because I want it to try to communicate to me more effectively what rhetorically the original language is doing um, with some of like the structures of how it's put together. So it's like the world under heaven is not a way you'd normally phrase something in English, um, but it it sounds proper to me like it sounds like it's got the proper weight behind it because it's trying to preserve some of like what the chinese is doing um linguistically right uh tenka we all know that word because it's the tenka in tenka ichi budokai yes strongest under the heavens martial arts tournament uh i think that's cool charles henry brewitt taylor who did that one was he wrote it in 1925 and he was an official in the chinese maritime customs service so he had just like an interesting perspective on things i imagine writing that book Um, less of, like, a scholar than someone who was, like, working on the ground, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, lots of good options. I think the Kindle version of what you're reading is only 99 cents, so if you want to get, like, that translation um, and read it on Kindle because it's easier than, like, carrying a thousand-page book around, you can do that. Um, You can also make the text as big as you want because I understand that the text in your book is very small. Yeah, I'll show it just for the benefit of you, Jonathan, so you can see. I know you've seen it before, but it is... I don't even know if you can see it on the camera because it is so small. No, I... It's, like, it's so small. I would not be able to read that. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I could, but it would annoy me. So, like, Kindle is that's that's where that's where ebooks are your friend because you can resize that shit however much you want, yes. and it it weighs nothing. You're not at the whims um, of the font size of whatever the publisher has determined. Yes. 
All right. Well, do you want to quickly do our recap and go through all ten again? Yes. Let us do that. The titles, not not the explanations, because good God, we've been here a yes, long let's time. Let's do a ten-hour podcast. Let's go. <laughs> ten, A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. My number ten is Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. My number nine is The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle. My number nine is Mouse by Art Spiegelman. My number eight, you might not have heard of it, Mobile Suit Gundam by Yoshiyuki Tomino. My number eight, All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark. Number seven, Starting Point by Hayao Miyazaki. My number seven, Moby Dick or the Whale by Herman Melville. Number six, Post Captain by Patrick O'Brien. My number six, King Lear by William Shakespeare. Number five, Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Arr. My number five, The Canterbury Tileless by Geoffrey Chaucer. Number four, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. My number four, Dubliners by James Joyce. Number three, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. My number three, The Odyssey by Homer. My number two, Emma by Jane Austen. My number two, Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley. Number one, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And my number one, Romance of the Three Kingdoms by Lo Guozhong. What a fucking weird cross-section of literature we just talked about for five hours, Sean. Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite podcasts we've done. I have no idea. I love it. Listeners, I don't know if you enjoyed this. I don't know what you got out of this, but it's just not often I get to talk about all this shit. Uh, It's like a very compressed amount of time. I mean, relatively compressed amount of time. Yeah. And I have a bunch of stuff I want to read now, Sean. Uh, Although, let me tell you, I'm going to pick you up here for a second on my webcam, because here is, so I am doing my comps, which is what you do in your PhD, they, it's this series of tests they have you do where you create lists of readings and and films, in my case, that they're going to test you on. Sean, here is the stack of books, I don't know if you can see it there, am I aiming the webcam? Yeah, you got it now, yeah, that's a lot. Okay. That's, and that's just the physical books I have. I have a lot of PDFs. I have more PDFs than books. Um, so I will not be reading for fun until February. Um, but next time I get to read for fun, I have, I have your list and I have... Romance of the Three Kingdoms is like my number one. I want to read it. And maybe Moby Dick. Moby Dick is very good. Yeah, I'm currently reading um, East of Eden by John Steinbeck because we're going to do that for 10 honors. And that is very good. Um, so that is what I'm reading yeah. right now. I do like that, like, to give people uh, at home a perspective on how many books you had there, it kind of looked like if you wanted to, you could basically sit on the floor and use that pile of books as, like, a support for your back, as, like, a floor chair. No, I could. Yeah. Yeah, I could. It's a lot of books. Um, and I'm just kind of scared, but we'll see. It's stuff, I'm, it's all on, like, Japanese cinema, so I'm interested in it. Uh, you get to pick your own areas, so it's stuff I am vaguely interested in. Uh, and sometimes not so vaguely, but that is my task. But anyway, we will see you guys next week. <laughs> Thank you for being here for 350 and now 351 episodes. It has been quite the ride. We finally got around to talking about literature. Hopefully did your brain some good. Uh, I'm tired. Yes, I am extremely tired, um, but uh, I hope that if you're someone who maybe hasn't been reading books recently, um, that maybe you have, you've heard some stuff here today uh, that would... It motivate you to get back into reading because it is a one of life's greatest pleasures and i feel like people kind of lose it a little bit as they grow up nowadays um so at the very least one here's my homework assignment from an english teacher for everyone at home just go read bartleby the scrivener because it's just so fucking good and it'll just take you like 30 minutes 
So just go do it. Just Google it right now. Bart will be the Scrivener. Um, the next week, uh, I'll give you your essay prompt.